Oh man, it's been so long now. It's been two months since we've heard that. A song in my heart. Yes, friends, it's been a long time. We've been hibernating over Hogswatch for for a number of kind of work and and COVID-related reasons, but we are back. We are back to talk Terry Pratchett. We are back to talk Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. We are on the home stretch. We are this week. We are tackling I Shall Wear Midnight, one of the final books, the penultimate book in the Tiffany Aching series. And uh, this week, of course, I am Colin, and he is Steve. Yep. So I shall wear midnight. So this this is going to uh, be a curious one because owing to the circumstances over, over uh, Hogswatch hibernation, it's actually been a while since I finished it. So you're going to have to do some. While I have some notes here, you're going to have to do some jogging of my memory. I think, <laughs> particularly in this opening part when we recount the uh, the the summarized of the plot of it. Um, oh yeah. So, so I do remember it starts. I think we start in Medea Res. A city is under attack from a giant mechanical spider. Um, and then Tiffany comes out. She's got like maybe a gun in one hand, maybe in the other hand. I I, I think it was like a flamingo, um, maybe a peacock. You can jog my memory here. Uh, uh, she says some re- quip. She says it was a mechanical like, peacock with like a cannon like inserted into the rectum, if I recall correctly. Yes, you know, yes, mechanical. Uh, that, horse, that old chestnut. <laughs> and then she says some quip to the spider, like you know. Uh, um, this time I'm not just going to grab you and a bit of tissue paper and throw you out the window and let you live, you prick. Um, she's some like some dry kill wit like that. Yeah, I mean, very much in the vein of like a DC Spider Man. So uh, <laughs> just want to get as many people angrily commenting on this as we possibly, <laughs> possibly can. <laughs> um, yeah. No, so so if if I do recall. Uh, what we start off with early on is that Tiffany is kind of on a call as the witch to a house where uh, a, a young, well, a teenage girl has gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Her abusive father has um, basically beaten his wife to the point that she's ran out. Uh, they don't know what he's done to the, the pregnant daughter yet, but there's a kind of mob, um, a vigilante mob. Uh, you know, gathering steam to basically go and, and enact uh, enact their form of justice on this abusive father, and she wants to get there uh, before it happens. She gets there to find that he has uh, beaten the girl into miscarrying, essentially, and she's trying to convince him to just like that the only thing he can do at this point is just to get out of dodge because otherwise he's going to be killed by this mob, and she essentially doesn't want them to become. Uh, tainted as he is by kind of you know like by murdering him it's a very uh, dark two opening two wrongs don't make a right yeah Actually, very dark. I mean honestly this might be the darkest opening any of the Discworld books have had so far dealing with such a grim topic but um, yeah it, it goes on from there when um, after uh, Mr. Petty he doesn't quite listen to her and he attacks uh, Tiffany this doesn't go well for him at all she basically releases all the pain that was in Amber and like back into uh, him and he just basically floors him and after that she brings Amber to the Knack McFeagles to, specifically to the Kelda, Jeannie who has something called the Soothings, I believe it is uh, basically the idea here that she's trying to heal as much of the emotional trauma that she's gone through and try to bring her back as um, 
you know, a normal uh, a normal child. What's interesting here, and like uh, this is something we'll come back to, I'm sure, again when we're really analyzing this, is a lot of seeds seem to be planted in terms of Amber's character. Uh, the way that she's able to understand the Knack McFeagles, like, really old language. Not the ones they speak to everyone, but, like, the really, really old language. Yeah, So yeah. Amber appears to be this really, uh, possibly a witch, possibly just some very powerful persona, who knows, but it's kind of, a pin is kind of put into it, and I feel like it might be visited again. But anyway, um... So she brings Amber to her and she leaves her with uh, Jeannie to kind of take care of her while she continues with her chores. Uh, after this, she goes to visit the the Baron, uh, Roland's father. Oh, it's just, I, I think at some point she goes back, doesn't she, and finds that Mr. Petty has turned to kill himself. Uh, oh, that's right, she's yes. able to uh, cut him down from the, the noose he's tied. Um, that's right. And I, I, I can't remember... I, at this point, whether we know or whether she thinks what will become of him afterwards, but basically he ends up reconciling after a fashion with with, with his wife at least, and then later, uh, much later in the book, to a certain extent with Amber, his daughter as well. But um, mm. yeah, just to mention that, but not much else becomes of him this, in, in the book. But yeah, this also comes about because uh, Tiffany goes back to the barn to get the body of the child. Um, so that she can bury her, which is very important because it's one of the worst jobs that Tiffany has to do. And it's, it's, it's incredible how young she is in this book. I think she, it's, she's 16, 17. Um, no, I think she's a bit younger than that. Maybe like, like 15 or 16 at most. I'd say. I think, I think it's 16 that she is. It's, oh yeah, but it's such a grim thing for like, you know, a 16 year old to have to deal with, but then witches, you know? Um, so at this point, uh, the, uh, she goes to the Baron to kind of soothe uh, his pain because this is something she's been doing for the last long, long time. And when she has basically removed all the pain that he's feeling in that moment, uh, he is, well, he, he talks to Tiffany about, you know, all the good she's done for him and she gives her, uh, some, is it, is it Ankh Morpork dollars? She gives him some, she, uh, he gives her some uh, some gold that is worth a considerable amount, a really considerable amount. And after that, um, he asks her if she can show him how she takes the pain out and puts it into something else. And she demonstrates using the fire and... Um, the oh, poker. Is yes, she, and the poker. She kind of transfers, yeah. Yeah, and w- it's while she's doing this, unfortunately, the Baron dies, and that is when... the well, he, he has this kind of ecstatic vision of, like, rem- remembrance of being with his father and seeing a hare jump through a fire. Like, that's the kind of the last thing he sees, and he dies happy. And I just bring that up because it, it's kind of it's a motif that recurs uh, throughout the book, is this idea of the hair jumping into the fire mm. um, and the kind of significance of hair is there to put, sorry, you were saying? Yeah, and it's uh, after he's died and she's still holding the poker and you can see the open chest is on the floor and that's when the nurse, Miss Bruce, comes in and she basically accuses Tiffany of having murdered him, trying to rob him and she makes a great, deal of all witches being like thieving manipulative cunning uh people and this is something that happens again and again and again throughout the book as we'll find out later but after uh tiffany leaves the castle using her 
wily ways basically because um, everyone there knows her and even though they're kind of suspicious of her being a witch most of the people in the castle have known her since she was a child so they don't exactly stop her and this is when Tiffany decides that she's the one who's going to have to go to Ankh-Morpork to tell Roland that his father has died now at this point we should also bring up the fact that Roland was sort of the love interest of Tiffany in the previous three books specifically in Wintersmith it definitely seemed like something was going to go on there but in this book it's revealed very early on that uh, he is actually marrying a girl called and if you bear with me I think Letitia Letitia and (laughs) something uh, Tiffany believes to be a name that's halfway between a salad and a sneeze which is one of my favourite descriptions (laughs) of any name (laughs) it's so good Um, Letitia is uh, a very high-born well-to-do son of a duchess or baroness is it a duchess or a baroness daughter of a yeah it's a duchess I believe a duchess that's right duchess always sounds kind of more yeah uh, yeah imposing so um grand they're, they're all in Ankh-Morpork and she flies in that direction and on the way something happens so why don't you tell us what happens from there on Colin well I, I think obviously at this point the Fiegel have, have uh, caught up with her haven't they like and the, they're um they're definitely with her when she she's flying partway to Ankh-Morpork and then she's getting a ride from a coach driver. Uh, yeah, that's when Big Woolly accidentally sets coach. fire to her broom and it starts to descend. Yeah, 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 that's it. That's, that's why she, I couldn't remember that. That's why she has to get the, the lift on the, the mail coach. Uh, he he's kind of, he had been delivering this like glittering, almost like disco ball type thing to uh, um, and that falls out and breaks but the Fiegel are able to put it back together but at this point as it breaks you know Tiffany is momentarily like very guilty this is obviously something very expensive and delicate wouldn't have happened if she wasn't on the uh, coach and seemingly out of nowhere this black clad figure pops up with no eyes just holes in his head and he kind of rants and spits bile at her and um, you know really kind of shouts her down she's initially a bit taken aback and kind of caught off guard because she was feeling guilty of having just broken this thing manages to regroup a bit and then the, the figure seems to have mysteriously vanished um, and on she goes to Ankh-Morpork where she visits um, firstly she, she's obviously like uh, nanny and granny in, in masquerade she's kind of out of her element being in the, the big city so she visits Boffo's joke shop which obviously she's familiar with from um, Miss Treason in, uh, in, in Wintersmith um, and what does she find in Buffalo's Joe shop? Well, first she meets. Uh, this is probably the first time we've seen this now. A city witch, which is an unusual thing in itself, and it's something I quite like in the way it's handled in this. Uh, it's a city witch by the name of Miss Proust. Uh, it's very good the way in, uh, she first meet her because she's looking at her and thinking like, "Wow, she must have bought literally everything Buffalo had to offer, like the wart, the nose, the skin, everything." But she realizes uh, very quickly uh, that rather than her buying all these things, she's actually the witch that Boffo's joke shop is modeled after. Uh, so um, while she's there, uh, oh, she also, before this point, she asks the Knack McFeagles to find Roland in the city. And uh, she also, they also ask, like, would it be all right if they stopped for a drink? Which, despite everything Tiffany tries to do, she can't really say no. So she just says, have one then. Um, so Miss Proust and Tiffany, uh, they 
start wandering around the city, basically, and that's when they come across... Oh, that's when they... Sorry, I'm getting a little muddled. Miss Prowse tells Tiffany that she's going to meet someone who's very, very important, and she'll find her rather than her finding uh, the other one. And uh, while they are out wandering, they find the Nat McFeagle have basically destroyed a bar called the King's Head. And the City Watch show up. Uh, this is It's always good, I think, when um, two different branches of, you know... Ankh-Morpork characters like meet in such an interesting way. So a lot of people come to try and stop the Nack McFeagle. And interestingly, there is a member of the Watch who is able to not only subdue a Nack McFeagle, but almost all of them. Who's that, Colin? It's, uh, no, I've forgotten his name, but he's the little lad who was also an Nack McFeagle. He rides around in a pigeon. We mad Arthur. That's it. That's, that's the fella. Um, I should say, before this, there's a brief bit when, when Mrs. Proust and or Proustrider and, and, and Tiffany leave her shop, there's, like, kids going to throw a stone mm, through the window. Yeah. And she scares them off, but she mentions to Tiffany about how this sort of thing is on the rise. Like, there's much more, uh, a much stronger climate of mistrust and suspicion of, of witches than there has been previously, and it seems to be uh, growing. That's right. And actually, as well as that, she also puts a little sticker on... Um uh, Tiffany's hat on the way out. I think it's something like a uh, hen, hen night or something like that. Something, yeah, some yeah, some kind so of sticker like that, so that uh, they don't think she's a real witch. She's a witch and an attacker. So back at the King's Head, then this turns out to be the um, the inn. I think where where Roland, uh, Leticia, and her mother, the Duchess, were staying. I spent too much time finding it here, but I never find this scene really funny. Of just like the the lo- he's kind of sprouting all of this, um, you know, cliched movie policeman speak but adjusting it for the fact that there's only one of him and loads of them you know like it, it's kind of like we've got you surrounded but he's yeah, I, damn I'm not, I'm not going to waste their time trying to find out the page but it's, it's a funny little scene anyway but the what what it does result in it we get kind of a bit of uh, I suppose a, a tonal emotional whiplash where we go from this funny scene to Tiffany then kind of awkwardly having to explain to Roland that his father has died He's sort of horrified and lashes out at her, feeling like, oh, you know, why couldn't you save him? Why didn't you do more? What are witches really good for? We can't do this. Uh, on top of that, obviously, then the, the kind of the Duchess it regards her as this, um, you know, like nefarious, dangerous character. If she's just shown up, brought these blue little men who wrecked the place, demands she she's kind of uh, arrested to account for, for the damages so it's it's Angua and Carrot basically end up arresting her but we get the kind of feeling that they sort of know there's something amiss here uh, and they're just kind of doing this for appearances sake so that like you know she'll have a night in the cells and and that'll more or less be it Um, so then herself and I think Mrs. Bruce and all the the Fiegel are locked up in the the cells and then what happens so then uh, at that point well, first, they, they have a bit of a discussion, and actually, there's a really interesting point here, and I just want to mention it now. We'll come back to it later, because it's something that I think needs dissecting. But Tiffany has a bit of a flashback when um, they're discussing, uh, you know, the way people are acting now, and how, like, there's poison being welcomed into people, and how it's making them act, like, so antagonistically towards witches. And she has a bit of a flashback of uh, the woman on the chalk, who that they who they let burnt down her house and let freeze mm-hmm. to death 
and Tiffany finds herself thinking about what it's like when people you know start to do terrible things and uh, what an unusual situation that is to be in something I feel is particularly prevalent nowadays but um, yeah. whatever we'll come back to that so the next so that's that's one thing that happens there but the next day they're released from the cells on the basis that the tavern owner is impressing charges because somehow the tavern has rebuilt itself um, as we've seen with the glittering ball that Nack McFeagal uh, fixed it turns out they're just as good at fixing things as they are at breaking them just not in exactly the way that it was before as we find when we get to the tavern and that it's actually backwards. <laughs> so the king's arse now. Yeah. Well, st- strictly speaking it's the queen's ne- or the king's neck. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That's the polite version. It's just not what the locals are calling it at the time. <laughs> but um yeah, they drop all charges there because the tavern owner is quite happy with the way it is now because everybody wants to come to the queen's neck to uh, get a drink (laughs) so they're very very happy with that there we actually um tiffany also meets uh vimes in a very subdued little cameo which i quite like it's it's nice that like i feel like a prolonged uh clash between those two wouldn't have worked quite well so i'm glad that it's very very brief because both of them are they don't really want much to do with either of each other which is great but then after that, they step into the tavern and then something happens. Uh, Tiffany kind of finds... She sees the cunning man coming in and she's she... The cunning man has announced her, himself to her before by his smell, which is... Oh, yeah, yeah. This is something that is explained by Miss Proust um, as it's not actually a smell. It's just the only way she can perceive basically what a terrible person he is because witches are susceptible susceptible to that kind of thing. So other people don't really... Most people can't really... Don't really notice him, but she does because there's a certain magic towards it. So once the cunning man appears and starts coming towards her, uh, something happens. Tiffany kind of drops through the floor and that's when she meets the person who I was so excited when I did not see this coming. Who does she meet underneath the floorboards, Colin? She meets Esk. Esk for equal rights comes back. Who, who the fuck saw that coming? This, can, actually, just very brief aside, is this the first time that you'd read this book? That was the first time I'd read it. Yes, but but I, I think I, I remember reading that. Uh, it was sort of, I hadn't known when I was reading this that like, oh, Esk comes back in this, but when it happened, it kind of jogged my memory of reading mm, right, about right. Esk and reading, oh, she makes an unusual return in. So I was, uh, I made a little less of an impact on it, it should have but it, it's so it's such a strange moment it's uh, like, like um it, there are a few uh, book series is ongoing as Discworld so I don't know if there's a really adequate point of comparison for this like one-off character from yeah. the third book it's uh, so you know, oh. co- coming back and um, particularly from this sort of era of the Discworld where you know mm. it's, it, it's, a, it's a lot wilder and the kind of the rules or limits of the horizons of the world he's building haven't really been established in the way that they have later. So Discworld's always had a sort of elastic chronology and continuity. So you just kind of, it it, it would never even cross your mind to wonder, Oh, what's Esk doing now? Because yeah. like, oh, she's, she's almost part of a different Discworld. You know, it's like wondering what, Harun the Barbarian is doing now, you know? <laughs> and actually, um, that's a kind of appropriate here. is covered in interesting times. Yeah. Uh, and, but, yeah, yeah, and she's, she's kind of like, she's sort of a, a kind of 
time traveler almost. She's like um, one more than time. She walked back in time to the origin of the cunning man and recounts it to Tiffany uh, that he's a he's like a thousand years old and Omnia. He was an inquisitor who you know burned many witches at the stake and uh, one particular girl accused of witchcraft. He fell in love with her and he went to uh, free her from the pyre. But she knew uh, what a you know cruel and um, sadistic being he was. So she basically kind of. Uh, held him tight on the pyre and ensured that he was burnt as well but such was the force of his hatred and his suspicion that he kind of remained on it's sort of like he's like a almost like a other side of the coin of how we see stuff like deities operating in this world where people's belief in a certain concept or being creates and empowers that being you know mo- most uh, export to fullest effect in small gods obviously set in Omnia but you know we see it playing out elsewhere and this is almost the other side of the coin where someone's individual force of belief in a particular cause then kind of transforms them into a like a, a spiritual being or a being beyond uh, kind of beyond the, the bounds of, of human uh, mortality and, and um, other human limitations but she implies then that he's been a kind of recurring foe for witches over the years since then, like coming back and sowing discontent and suspicion, and he always has to be bested. And this was a part that, um, I mean, I just had my general notes about it, but I, I might as well ask now because I feel like this is either like, like a, a kind of slip that's maybe worth discussion later on or just something I misinterpreted that maybe you can correct me on. But I feel like initially the stakes that esk establishes with tiffany seems to be like she says something like like if you lose all of witchcraft loses and that kind of implied to me in that like oh if he wins this this climate of mistrust and suspicion against witches will grow to basically unstoppable you know like heights it will gather such momentum that like all of the other witches no matter how formidable or powerful like granny and nanny and so on that you know the tide will have turned against them to the degree that they won't be able to turn it back but then later it just seems to shift to basically it's a one-to-one thing that he will defeat and possess tiffany and any other witches such as granny and and the, the rest of the lunker coven will have to step in and kill her um rather than let that spread and i wasn't sure whether i was like did I just get the wrong end of the stick when Esk was explaining it to her first? Like, she was using the, if you lose, all of witchcraft loses more in a metaphorical sense? Or is that something, did you get a similar sense of, like, you have one sense of the stakes, and then it's, like, it, it gets adjusted from, I suppose, from a kind of, like, world-spanning threat to all of witchcraft to becoming a much more intimate but still powerful threat to Tiffany and her immediate circle. I, I, I read it very much as like an ideological threat like from the beginning. Like I didn't really see it as like um you know, the world is going to end. It was just gonna be a case of like this is just going to fuck with witches, but like by extension the rest of the world, because if witches as like a concept or a culture collapses, like then you're going to have all the jobs that people need to be done mm-hmm. like you know all the like important decisions that nobody else wants to make suddenly there's going to be no one around to make them and that's going to be what brings the world kind of into a sense of chaos yeah yeah that, that was sort of what i got but i suppose later in those bits when you have granny and so on around t- the stakes seem to be that like 
if, if Tiffany loses, they will step in and kill her, you know, rather than let the rest of this happen. And obviously, you never find that out. Spoilers are jumping ahead, but she, you know, she doesn't lose to the, to the cunning man. But the implication seems to be that, like, like that's the worst thing that will happen is that they'll have to step in and, and kill her. Not that you know they won't be able to achieve that, and then witchcraft will be destroyed. True. I think when I was looking at that, I. I kind of saw it could have been one of two ways. On the one hand, I thought that either A, Esk hadn't really, this is unlikely now, I think Esk hadn't really considered the idea that like the other witches would kill her so that they're like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. so they'll turn Esk or he'll, the cunning man will possess Esk and therefore he'll start using her for like all his evil deeds and people will see this they'll re- they'll think oh well witches are like just as evil as we've always thought and that'll be what brings down the witches the other thing that i think it might have been was um if the w- other witches have to kill esk people will see witches fighting amongst themselves and like another witch has to kill one witch has to kill another witch and basically it'll take them off the pedestal that they've built for themselves and suddenly just make them people like and people who are capable of like terrible bad things because like from their point of view it will just be a bad thing that they've killed a little girl essentially and that'll be what like causes all the chaos and like for people to think well witches are just terrible people i think the first is more likely um but yeah it's 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 a little muddy but i feel like for the Go, going on the momentum of the story it, it kind of swept me along and it's just not something I thought about too much because so much of it was in terms of ideology I wasn't really thinking of like the literal sense it was a lot of this was very much in the ideological you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah fair enough and, and sorry from diverting from our summary there I just I, when I noted that down later I wasn't sure whether that was something that was like literally I had misread that in the you know in the moment when Ed Esk is talking to her, or whether it was something that is more ambiguous. So, but anyway, yeah. She, so she knows now that she has to de- what the cunning man is, that she has to defeat him. Uh, so she returns to the chalk and finds that the Roland, like the, the you know his new Baron as he is now, he's getting soldiers to try and dig up the Fiegel's mount. Um, and she sort of has to diffuse a potential conflict with the soldiers and the Fiegel. Like it's 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 an unusually serious moment with the Fiegel. Like you mm. you really get the sense like like Rob anybody going from this kind of comic figure of uh, debauchery and um, you know kind of like a, just like fun wild abandoned that that he normally is. He's suddenly this very kind of uh, protected protective and furious father about the idea of his, his kind of uh, his bairns and, and genie being threatened but uh, Tiffany manages successfully at least to kind of kick the can down the road there and ensure that the soldiers don't go through with the digging there and inside a conflict with, with the Fiegel. Um but then she is arrested by Roland's guards on suspicion of the, his father's murder and thrown in the dungeon and we get the sense that like the guards and a lot of the other people around are very uncomfortable about this. They don't really believe that she had anything to do with it, but also they're just uncomfortable with the idea of um, prosecuting and persecuting a witch. Um, she she kind of has come to occupy this sort of quite substantial role in their community, and they just, just the idea of kind of taking her or into custody and putting her in a dungeon just doesn't gel with that. But the uh, 
Roland and, and more particularly his, his um, mother-in-law to be the Duchess is really pushing for this she, there's kind of like a, a sort of power struggle being played out in the background in that she has her own guard with her um, uh, and there, there's no sense of like her attempting a coup or anything like that but more that I suppose there's more weight to her demands uh, of him and commands of his household than simply her being a kind of you know formidable uh, self-important aristocrat there's kind of there there is a like there um there's more yes potential substance behind that so tiffany's in the dungeon and roland and leticia are about to get married and all the guests are arriving for their their wedding uh we hear that like like uh, notably a lot of people from the surrounding areas such as lancra so we get all our old pals there, Granny and Nanny, and I believe McGrath is mentioned as well, although we never actually um, see her. But uh, mm. then what happens? Well, it's in and around this point, we I think we're also introduced to a new character who at first seems quite minor, but plays a bigger role later. It's a guard that uh, who works in the uh, the Duke's, is it a palace, a castle? Castle, yeah, castle I think. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like older and um, yeah, more medieval yeah. than than a palatial manor or something like that. Yeah, but we meet a young guard by the name of Preston who um, just catches Tiffany's attention because he seems to have a lot of common sense. Um, he he talks about uh, oh, sorry, it's a. Uh, w- at some point, this might be before or after. I don't. I don't think it, it's too relevant, like where it comes. But at one point, Tiffany goes down to the basement to care for the Baron's body, and she basically takes the heat out of the stone slab that he's on to make sure it's as icy cold as possible. So she's transferring heat into uh, buckets, and Preston is just very together on this. He's he's got his head in the game, and he's just he's. On top of things, he brings things down. He makes sure that like um, she has everything she needs. He just seems to really be uh, on the ball in terms of you know how to deal with biological things and stuff like that. Um, he, he becomes yeah, well, important. He not only on. has common sense too; he has this kind of abstract thinking. Like he's talking a lot about yeah. words and the meanings and connotations of words. And um, what's this thing about? Uh, is it like conundrum or something he says? It's like a brass snake coiled up. Um, so Yeah, I think that's like, he talks a lot about, this is something I've always found really interesting myself, but like he just talks about the way things sound or yeah. what he thinks like uh, something might sound like. Um, like there's one question I think that uh, Tiffany asks um, Roland first and he just like shuts it down immediately because he's like, I don't know. This is something that like I don't need to know. Um, I'm trying to find out what it was. Uh, oh yeah, that says I don't have the head that lives in a world where kindness has a sound, and uh, I think uh, Tiffany asked the same question of um, Preston, and he kind of has a really thoughtful answer, like something that he's really considered. So it just it it's at first it kind of just emphasizes more than anything how different Tiffany and Roland are. Uh, yeah. Something that like wasn't really a major thing in the previous books we were kind of uh we were kind of expecting to see them two get together there was a lot of setups kind of uh emphasize this um so it's interesting that's going in an opposite direction but um while she is in the dungeon she is visited by Leti- Leticia. is it Leticia? uh i i pronounce it Leticia. 
but Letitia? I, I don't know. You, you could you could take it either way, I suppose. Either either, but um, we're uh, visit. She's visited by Letitia, and. This is another thing that's introduced at this point, which I thought was really clever. And it's not something I've heard before. It was uh, the concept of spilled words. Uh, this is something I thought that was really good. It's like, it's not even magic. It's just like the words that people are saying without saying it. And it's something that like you do hear in casual conversation all the time. Like, it's just such a common thing. Like when someone says something in such a way, it's like, you're a really nice person. I really like you a lot. And the spill word there, very obviously, but, is like, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, this is... It's in- funny, it's, it's a technique I was uh, advised, I remember like a, um, so by, I can't remember what I mentioned this in the podcast before, but I, I, I do a lot of um, acting, and I, I remember like early on with being in a play and trying to get like a line right, and one of the older actors telling me, essentially to use that, he's like, you know, you, you want to sound anger, so whatever, the line was something that like on its own merits just kind of like just commonplace sounding like um I'll, I'll, like i'll do it later or whatever but you're meant to get more anger into it and he's just saying like he said like imagine you're saying i'll do it later you fucking bitch you know because it was me kind of arguing with my wife in the play and he's like but obviously don't say that but say it as <laughs> if those words w- would be following on ah. um, and then you're you're able to kind of produce that that effect uh ah. more more effectively so it's and you yeah you you're right it is one of those concepts that i hadn't really thought about other than in that context that when it's introduced in the book you're like oh yeah that makes perfect sense Mm. it really falls into that kind of like headology approach of witches where the real magic is just kind of piercing through the layers of obfuscation and just seeing this real meaning and uh, that, that surrounds us all the time Mm. And it's like while she's talking to Letitia here, she realizes that Letitia did something. She's basically apologizing to her for having done something. The spill words being, I didn't mean to. And she realizes that she needs to talk to her about this to find out what she means by that. So in the night, uh, she escapes the dungeon by going up the chimney, something that most people there aren't even aware it has. Or rather, they're aware it's there, but they don't think about it because it's always been there. Another very common thing in which is... So uh, she leaves through the uh, chimney and she goes to visit Letitia and it's there she discovers that Letitia, to a certain degree, cast a spell on her. It kind of sounds like a voodoo doll is what she uh, fashioned, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Like she made some kind of doll using um, a very vague sounding spell book and she basically stuck her head in sand or something like that and that's what's making her, making people look at her in the way that they are. Um, it's not 100% true, obviously, because the cunning man is also a part of this. Uh, how, how does he come into it again? I remember it's when uh, they visit her castle, Letitia and the Duchess's castle. They go to the library where they find a whole bunch of placated ghosts. Uh, there was one, what was it? There was one ghost, I think, who was always walking the halls and sobbing. And Letitia soothes him by giving him a teddy bear, something that Tiffany is absolutely like, gobsmacked by us like anyone else would be like saying oh no my house is haunted but in the most like normal and practical way she just like takes care of the problem saying oh there you go but um while she's there she looks through the spell that Letitia has cast and the book she used and there she finds column was my spill word there um (laughs) well my words are spilling in my ears because I, I, I my, my mind's drawn a blank at this as I said it's been been a while since I 
I, I, I read it so I, like I, I I remember that them going to the ca- the Duchess uh, Castle or Palace, and I remember the her trying to reverse this course that Leticia feels she's put on Tiffany, but I, I can't remember where it links up with the the Cunning Man stuff. So there's a book that it's like. A, a spell book basically it's the one that the cunning man wrote years and years ago and he basically we discover later on in the book I might as well say it now that the cunning man can appear in pictures in mirrors in paintings anything like that that's like, just like a skill that he has so while she's looking in the book she sees basically she sees the cunning man coming towards her in a picture so she shuts it very quickly and because this is a magic oh, book yes, yeah, the yeah. cunning man knows where she is now so whereas before I think I think the implication before this was he was just kind of stumbling across her he was basically infusing people with hate in a kind of abstract random manner but mm-hmm. this is the point where suddenly he knows where she is that that seems to that seemed to me to be the implication but I'm not sure did you get a similar kind of feeling it, it was a yeah. little hazy well, well, I yeah I wasn't exactly sure how or why he was finding her prior to that but you, de- you definitely get sense from this point of like a sort of ticking clock, at like that he knows where she is. He's definitely going to come for her, so there's going to be a confrontation, and soon, and she has to deal with it. Um, but yeah, I, I was left a- hazy as to kind of when when you find out that you then realise that he didn't know where she was before. So you're like, was it by chance? Was he running across other witches in between us seeing him in like on on the road to Ankh Park and in Ankh Park? Like, was he just showing up? anywhere there was witches and he happened to meet Tiffany twice? I think my suspicion on this is that um, he showed up when people are looking at witches and feeling that, you know, sense of like, you know, fear and distrust for witches, he kind of showed up as a result of that and then he made it worse. I think that was the Mm -hmm. impression I got because, you know, when she initially broke the state, like the, on the mail coach, the, the, mirrored ball that the man had she initially felt kind of guilty about that so he kind of was attracted to that and that was what made him show up and then again when she's in the bar i think there's there's a scene just before or there's a few sentences just before he shows up where uh people are looking at her uh you know and looking at the hat and thinking you know you know bitter thoughts towards witches and because of that he seems to be attracted to it this isn't definite it's just kind of how i read it so I'm not sure. Yeah. But so then around this time then when he's after he ends up kind of possessing a fella who's uh, on like like death row or basically in in like the deepest darkest section of the Tanti in Ankh-Morpork. Park. It's like essentially just the serial killer chap that's there uh, who then breaks out empowered by the cunning man and like is making his way back to the chalk to get uh, Tiffany. Um and she, seeing this, this recurring motif of hairs and jumping into the fire, she uh, sort of uses this to develop a plan to trap him, whereby you have these fields of, of corn or, uh, in the shop that they'll, like, you'll, you know, set one alight to... I honestly can't remember. For some kind of... A, this is, like, fucking city slicker me talking... Some agricultural <laughs> reason. Like, Basically, it's like... like uh, they set a field on fire. With, yeah, with the, when there's a bunch of, like, uh, dead... Um, or, like, dead or, like, uh, crops that aren't really producing that well. They burn the whole thing. It's kind of a way of just starting the field anew. 
Um, so yeah, the plan is that she's going to trap him in that because she knows the cunning man is afraid of fire because mm-hmm. that's where he died back uh, when back in the olden days. But um, but prior to this, we're actually a lot of the witches from Lonker and all these other places show up. Uh, there's a few amusing scenes prior to this. I love when um, she decides to introduce Mrs. Proust to Granny Weatherwax, thinking like it's going to be a cataclysmic, like, holy shit, what's going to happen here? Oh, sorry. They arrive yeah. a little bit later, actually, it should be said. Mrs. Proust and uh, two other witches, they arrive separately. And um, yeah, while they're there, a while, after she arrives... Um, Tiffany really wants to introduce two and just like watch the fireworks go up because like, you know, she needs a laugh. But unfortunately, they're it's one of the few situations where like Granny is just very like, yep, we're just witches. It's fine. And there's like no like uh, abrasiveness whatsoever. It's quite unusual, actually. But there it is. There's also uh, Mrs. It's not Miss. Is it Mrs. Proust who uh, sees the Duchess? Yeah, and recognizes, and recognizes her. her. Yeah. yeah, and this it's revealed later that Mrs. Proust and the Duchess were actually part of a dancing troupe, and that's how she knows her, so that uh, the Duchess wasn't born into um, high class, like so she kind of worked towards it, which is something that we'll come back to later. And as well as this, oh, we also find out that Letitia is actually like, she basically is a witch. Like, she's not trained, but she's clearly highly skilled. Yeah, yeah. Um and is there something else that happens oh of course as well we have the funeral and the wedding oh so, yeah yeah that's, that's and nanny Og is kind of able to sort of like she gets up and starts singing and sort of cheers everyone up and you know kind of uh, i suppose like lightens the the mood of the the whole thing mm, yeah yeah um so anyway once all this a lot of little things happen at this point but it's all kind of building up to the cunning man arrive arriving and there's also a great moment, I think, beforehand where Granny Weatherwax, even, Tiffany has, uh, through her inner monologue, she has said a lot of times that like she could ask for help. She could ask the other witches like to help her. She doesn't have to do this alone. But her second thoughts or third thoughts are always like, no, I can't do that. This is like, I'm a witch. And if I ask for help, they'll always look at me and thinking, can she really go the distance? Can she really do this? Is she really worthy of being a witch? a great part of Tiffany's character that I really like I really enjoy that um, usually it's it's kind of dull when a character is just kind of like I have to do this I'm just so righteous but like she has a really interesting and good justification for why she is that way Granny Weatherwax basically comes up to her and says we can help you you know like she actually offers which is very unusual well yeah it is very unusual among witches but Tiffany flat out refuses saying no that this is going to be me I'm going to take care of it uh, do you remember what happens after that when they go out to the the fields? Yeah, so it's, 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 she hatches this plan with Preston and uh, Letitia, Letitia and Roland are there. But I can't remember why exactly, like whether they... Ro- Roland is there because he's technically having his stag. Oh, sorry, yes, oh, the, we- yeah. the wedding hasn't yeah, happened yeah, at this point. Sorry, yeah. yes. Yes, yeah, so, so they go, yeah, they go, for, and he's like tied up, you know, in whatever, some silly, like, you know, stag costume. Um mm. And Letitia comes to find him afterwards, but this is only this only Tiffany only learns this like much later when the cunning man is on his way and showing up. But um, yeah, anyway, once she gets there, basically there's the four of them: Preston, Tiffany, uh, Letitia, and Roland. And the cunning man like arrives, and that's when she sends Roland and Letitia away on the broom, and basically Tiffany and Roland are act- acting as bait. 
and that's when the cunning man is getting quite close that's when roland lights the fire mm-hmm. and they start running oh, how i here things happen so fast it's it's very difficult for me to remember a lot happens in a short space of time but basically yeah they they, they run and they kind of like the hair they jump through, through the, the fire, fire as it's kind of uh, enveloping the, the edges of the field to make it out the other side and, and the cunning man is consumed in the blaze mm. uh, and then the wedding happens and so forth and we jump ahead then at the end to this kind of local fair which we saw another example of at, at the start um, and we oh no sorry there, there's then immediately afterwards there's a bit where like uh, I suppose it's the new month where you know uh, Tiffany's kind of explaining things to, to Roland and sort of clearing the air and he's making it clear she isn't suspected of his uh, father's death and she asks for, basically for kind of permission and funding to found a school and says that Preston should be one of the teachers there. And then we jump ahead to this fair kind of some also, months later. Sorry, just to stop you, as well as that, she also uh, asked that the the land that the Knack McFeagles, like are living in, that it actually oh, be given yes, yeah. to the Knack McFeagles so that they own it legally. Um, and yeah, that, that's that's another thing. And that's, that's when we jump ahead. And uh, yeah, we see Preston is, uh, he's given the opportunity to become a doctor in Ankh-Morpork. Uh, shortly afterwards um, and also Amber and her husband uh, show up and they give uh, Tiffany a black dress which uh, is kind of hearkening to the title of the book I Shall Wear Midnight and I think Tiffany yeah which she sort of talked about she actually used that line in previous books of basically that she'll kind of only start wearing black when she sort of fully grows up and becomes a witch and, and her you know youth is the time where she doesn't have to do that yet mm. and towards the very end pretty much the last few lines uh preston basically asks is it what what does love sound like i think is the word that he uses yeah yeah and um yeah tiffany just says listen which is a good a sign as anyway that she's saying like you know it, it's it's very obvious that there is a romance happening in between here oh and one last thing just before that happens we also have a brief moment where Esk shows up again with another much older witch who we learn is actually Tiffany far, far in the future. Mm-hmm. And one thing we notice, like they talk, have a little bit of a banter, but one thing in particular that's quite interesting is um, she notices Tif- the future Tiffany has a necklace around her neck, uh, which has like a gold hair. Uh, and shortly after that, um, Preston uh, gives her the present of the gold hair chain so that's really interesting because like you know it's foreshadowing of what might happen in the future anyway but that's that's the novel that's the story Q&A, yeah yeah so um quite a lot goes on um one thing i'm going to say about this before we go any further i'm really enjoying like this almost mini discworld series because plotting uh tiffany's character development through these books has been really an experience like it's really really in-depth character development that's going on here and like it's interesting that like it doesn't seem to be going the way you expect most times this book in particular went in a direction that i wasn't expecting but i was very happy to see yeah yeah there's a definite sense of sense of growth and it's not always easy and it's not always straightforward like i've read some pieces about this where people criticize how jealous she is of letitia and think oh this is you know 
stereotypical teenage girl stuff and you know it, it like she shouldn't be doing this because she's a witch I'm like yeah but she also is still a teenage girl and I like that that you have this balance of her trying to balance kind of this role that she performs in the community of being a witch that is kind of founded on tradition and reputation set by people like Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og with her real human desires and feelings that are sometimes kind of petty and self-interested in the way that anyone's would be, you know? Mm. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really well done. There's also, there's a great sense in this of like that she has so wholly thrown herself into the role that it's to the detriment of her health. Like you really mm. have this sense that she's hardly sleeping, she's hardly eating, and it kind of generates this weird sense of narrative momentum. Like I think the only comparison, and this is obviously high praise in itself, is Nightwatch, where like the further and further Nightwatch goes on, and the kind of the you know revolutionary activities and the, the chaos in the city escalates. It's sort of mirrored in Vimes, kind of not sleeping, not finding any time to eat and just feeling continually exhausted but these feelings of exhaustion being expressed while he's in the midst of doing something and continuing to do something and it, it, it sort of inspires these feelings of sympathy in the reader where you feel kind of exhausted on behalf of Vimes and Tiffany and just feel like hang on just just slow down you know and, uh, mm. and there's this kind of generates this feeling of fragility where like whatever stakes have been established by like the villains or the central quandary of the the that the uh, main character has to deal with feels exacerbated by the fact that you know they're not kind of dealing with it at a hundred percent because they're sort of it, it we we've just we just had it emphasized to us that they're you know physically on the verge of of like you know of collapse yeah um, and actually, the, the writing style in this particular book, I've really enjoyed because this is something that could be grossly mishandled by like a lesser author by saying like a very big part, like, as you said, the momentum in the first half of the book specifically when she's doing so many jobs, like she's it's it's expressed that like she's so tired, she hasn't got a meal, but whereas some authors would have her say like in her head, like, oh, my God, I'm so tired or like her limbs were so weary the way it's done here is like even through like the narrative voice it's just like Tiffany couldn't remember the last time she had a good meal or or when was the last time you slept oh I think it was like three hours you know last night it's all done kind of like you know not emphatically like you said oh yeah that's true like I haven't had a lot of sleep or oh yeah you're right yeah I'm actually quite hungry but like it's never like focused on like there's no kind of sense of like self-pity it's like that's a shame, but these are the important things I have to do. And it's not even Tiffany's voice. It's the way the book is written that, um, you know, it's just emphasizing that. And like, but we're still getting that impression. We're still very much aware because it's constantly put put to us that she is suffering here. Like she's doing the job and she's doing such a good job that it's, or she's doing so much work that, like you said, it is affecting her health. Like it's all, we're always reminded of it, but never so much that it's taking over or like threatening to stop her from doing the job that she has ahead of her, which I just, I really appreciate. I didn't ask actually as, as a whole, like usually we do this at the very start, but we haven't even mentioned it yet. What did you think of this book? How, how did you enjoy it? I did. I kind of think it's, or it's a little, bloated in a way I can't quite put my finger on like I feel like there's just a bit too much you know and it's one of the longer certainly one of the longer Tiffany books my edition here is is 400 and 
414 pages of, of story Same, and yeah. uh, you know god knows how many words that is um, and I can't point to something and say this is definitely extraneous or dull or you know besides the point but there is something just overall like, like that that same momentum we've just been talking about that's generated by how deftly these Tiffany's feelings of desperation and exhaustion has worked into the text that's kind of hurt by this odd sense of bloat where there's kind of points where you don't really know where it's going and sometimes that's mm. really interesting and intoxicating you're kind of like mm. uh, which, which I've sort of found of all of the Tiffany books so far um, maybe a little less of the We Free Man that's, that's more kind of a conventional uh, story in that like her brother goes missing she goes find her brother but the rest of them there's like a point where you kind of feel as an experienced Discworld reader, okay, I, I see what's going to happen here. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. You kind of, you just feel like, okay, I've figured out, like looking forward to this. And then you're thrown, you know, the plot takes a different direction. A, a problem you thought would be the climactic issue of the novel gets kind of solved or addressed earlier on and we're left with more room to explore something else. Um, so so I often, like, I quite like that in 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 many Discord books and certainly in the Tiffany ones, and I like it a lot here. But at the same time, I without I can't really put my finger on it. But the, but there is a there are some point where it just becomes like a little too much. Where I'm kind of thinking like, okay, so what, what, hang on, what's really going on here? What mm. what what am I really meant to be getting my teeth into? You know, um, I suppose to to some it feels really good, but less than the sum of its parts. Like, there's a lot of elements that I point to individually and say, oh, this character's really interesting, this is a really good team, motif, idea, but then the overall thing, it just, I don't know, they don't all quite click together in a way. But Sorry, that's just to sum up my rambling, um, and you ramble away yourself now. Yeah, um, I, 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 I to a certain extent definitely agree with you in, in, in a lot of those areas. Like, I, I found myself... I remember reading somewhere, I was trying to find it afterwards, I couldn't remember where I saw it, but I remember this being, this particular book being absolutely lauded as a masterpiece, one of like Terry Pratchett's very best books. And like, again, as you said, there are bits in it that are absolute genius, like we've talked about a few of them, but I, the issue that I have at the end of it, it's, it's very similar to the issue that I had with Unseen Academicals. Like, the issue of the stakes are a little muddied, that I don't really know what it... We, we talked about this already like we we don't really know what's going to happen if she loses to like uh the cunning man and the ideologies behind it like um some of them are very straightforward but they they get a little bit jump like i i i like the i like each individual arc that's going on but i feel like there's some of them that don't get explored like enough and like, like for example, the whole thing with Amber, I feel like was an idea that was picked up and then just dropped. Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Like I feel like there should be more there. Like maybe that'll be brought up again in the Shepherd's Crown. I don't know because I haven't read it, but um, it definitely feel feels like there should have been more to that. Uh, and similar with Letitia, I have less of an issue about because we discover that she's a gifted witch like quite late on, and I feel like that's something that kind of ties into like her marriage to Roland and um, Tiffany letting go of that relationship and understanding that like it's not a healthy mm-hmm. relationship to be in. So that makes sense. I'm, I'm, I have no issues with that. But the Amber I one... I think there, there's also a nice parallel with Letitia as well, where obviously Tiffany is persecuted and, and confronted throughout the novel by people making these blanket presumptions about witches. 
Mm. And then she is sort of guilty of doing the same for Letitia, where she feels like, yeah. you know, she's certainly very much pigeonholing her as this typical soppy, spoiled, you know, aristocratic girl whose only purpose and uh, desire in life is to get married to some aristocrat, you know, pop out babies and kind of mm. wear fine clothes. And then she sees that deconstructed the more she gets to know her. While also, you know, it isn't done in a kind of cheap way where suddenly like you know in a she's blink extremely of an eye, capable or something yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like oh well you thought I was soppy back there like she still is sort of uh, I don't know if hysterical is the right word but she seems forever on the verge of you know tears or she, she's more capable than she's initially like put forward to be like, yeah. like and because, she's sort of more more capable than she thinks she is like when yeah, Tiffany goes yeah. to the manor and sees if she's dealt with the ghost like you said and is really impressed it's like Letitia doesn't give herself enough credit for doing mm. that. So when she's confronted with a problem like this course, she worries that she's put on Tiffany. She completely panics when it's like, you know, you're you're actually more adept at solving these things than you think. Which mm. is a nice, uh, I think, a nice way uh, way of depicting her. Done. Yeah, this simple turnaround of like, you thought she was a dope, but she's actually really cool. Yeah. No, I I think she was a really really well developed character. Actually, like. And especially like that, I really like the parallel that you mentioned before because she turns out to be, she's very skilled. Like she's got a lot of raw magical ability, but absolutely zero training. And, you know, Tiffany is kind of the complete opposite of that. She, like we've already seen through the past three books how hard she works to be where she is. Mm -hmm. Like in the first book, she is just a smart girl. That's all there is to it. A smart girl with a frying pan who happens to have the help of the fairies. Like she doesn't have magical abilities except what her what Granny Aiken kind of gifts her towards the end. But that's not really what being a witch is about. That's just again kind of a happy coincidence or part of her upbringing, whatever you want to call it. But we've seen how she is. Wor- it's really interesting how like some of the tricks that she learns like get utilized in very minute ways. Like in the second book. Uh, Hatful of Sky, a very big emphasis is placed on her ability to step out of her body and look at herself. And in this book, it's for the briefest of moments, at the very end of the book, she takes a step out of herself to look at herself when she's wearing the black dress. And that's it. That's the only thing, the only point where that comes up. And like her whole ability of moving heat through things and stuff, that's another thing that uh, she turns out to be really, really good at. And I think it's why um, she's portrayed as this particularly powerful witch that like the other witches are clearly so concerned with uh, her being possessed by the cunning man that they feel like all of them have to gang together. Because when you think about it, that is like a very powerful ability that she has that only herself and Grady Weatherwax, I think, are said to have. You know, the transferring of pain as well is the other one. Yeah, yeah. One thing I liked about this, and I feel like this is something that Terry Pratchett has, it's... I'm not sure how aware he is of he's doing this or if it, it kind of feels like a bit of a light bulb moment in this one, but to a certain extent, Wintersmith as well, how much of a light he's shining on Nanny Og. Like there's a bit in this book where um, I think there's a sentence that says Nanny Og is rumored to be smarter than Granny Weatherwax. She's sm- so smart that she's she makes sure that she never finds out about it or something like that. Like there's great, great reverence for Nanny Og in this one. And I think that's not a coincidence because... The big selling point that I think he's trying to get across with, um, there's a few multiple points, there's multiple points that are being sold to us in this, but the biggest one, 
or one of them anyway, <laughs> is that Tiffany should, like, yes, she is a witch, but she is also a young girl who, like, she should enjoy her life and just not live for her job, which is something that can apply to all of us, actually, that um, it's interesting looking at this through a fantasy perspective. I haven't even thought of it that way until now that I've just said it. Yeah, and you see stuff like when, when Nanny gets up and um, sings at the, the funeral. Hmm. It, it's uh, on, on some level, it seems like an indulgent, shirking of her duty like rather than doing important witchy stuff she's just getting up and carousing but then you very quickly see that that's the best thing you could do at the time it lightens the mood and it kind of helps break down some of the walls that were there between the uh, the groom's party and the, and the bride's party you know and suddenly they're all uh, enjoying themselves and, and, and getting to know one another and so on so these I suppose she 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 illustrates this different view on witchcraft on the kind of very uh, work-driven, you know, impersonal, almost self-isolating route that Tiffany seems to have embraced at the start of the book. Mm. Like when we see her in that fair, that's kind of, it bookends it, like at, at the end. She, and she's kind of there, you know, and people are polite to her, but there's very much a sense that she has kind of set herself fully apart from them and won't, you know... And has to maintain those barriers, like that awkward, funny conversation with the, uh, the little girls. About, like, <laughs> yeah, you know. I really like that one. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but you also see in that that she kind of, her interaction with quote-unquote normal people, like the kind of people at the community of the jock, is sort of awkward and stilted. And not that that's like entirely, you know, sabotaging, like it doesn't ruin her efforts to be a witch, but it's clear that like she thinks this is what she has to do, is kind of set herself above and beyond everyone else and with Nanny you kind of see that you don't necessarily have to go down that route and then it ends beautifully with like her part of her legacy in the chalk is kind of embedding these ideas in the community by starting a school so this is going to be like other people are going to learn a headology for want of a better term kind of critical thinking and these different things these different uh, priorities and, and, and ideas um, I'm not I, I I like the sentiment of like oh maybe Nanny is as or more powerful than Granny and she doesn't let her know. I'm not as mad as it actually being said, if only because by mm. the point at which I read this, it was something I had heard Pratchett say in like interviews, and I think he has a quote about it in the Art of the Discworld most prominently, like you know when he has the little notes, and I sort of feel like it's kind of unnecessary to actually say it in a book you know what i mean like yeah. you, sh show don't tell like like mm. when you see when, when she kind of sings at the funeral and uh you know breaks down these barriers between people who are previously stiff and uh somewhat suspicious of one another you see the value in her different perspective you don't mm. need to be told oh maybe this is actually more powerful you know like when you have a moment in a long-running television series or or like film franchise of something fans have kind of speculated about and like the writers are just like ah oh, yeah we'll just throw in something to kind of confirm that and sometimes <laughs> that works like sometimes that's a nice bit of validation but other times it's like ah oh, it's, it's unnecessary like we didn't yeah, it kind of takes you out of it, you know? It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, that moment in Avengers Endgame. Do you know uh, that moment in the final battle when all the women group together <laughs> yeah, as yeah. if to say, oh my God, women are strong too. It's again, something that has been like highlighted, emphasized and done really well throughout the entire thing. But then this is really, really ham-fisted moment saying like, hey guys, girl power. <laughs> it's, it was horrible. 
But um, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like, I feel like aside from the singing bit, but also that moment where they're explaining why they're there and she lets slip that, um, oh yeah, we're not here to interfere with the cunning man either. And she says it in a way that uh, the Tiffany in her head thinks like, yeah, that sounds like something that just slipped out. But if it slipped out, she was probably thinking and considering it very mm-hmm. carefully before it is. Like, that's perfect. That's the kind of thing you need. Um, that that gets the message across. But I, I yeah. still think it's it's very it's interesting how much focus he puts on Nanny Og in this. Aside from Granny Weatherwax, like that, he's putting a lot of emphasis on like living rather than working here, and like it's a much. It's weird that like he's doing this in like one of the witches' books. Well, maybe not so weird, but like in some ways, this is one of his most emotional books. That like he's really highlighting the importance of like connections and humanity, rather mm-hmm. than like you know good old fashioned daring do and doing the right thing and morality, which is kind of the focus in previous ones. Here it's just very much of like, hey, live your life. That's important too. You know, it's a very very big thing. And like we see this in multiple facets of this. Like um, in terms of like you know the Nack McFeagles have that moment on the hill. And, like, we see, hear, like, Rob anybody saying, like, my children were down there. Something that, like, we barely hear anything. Like, previously, the Knack McFeagle were just, like, they were all punching each other. And they always punch everybody and all drinking, yeah. losing, you know. But here's this moment of suddenly, like, hey, my children, my wife were down there. And we can see, like, genuine emotion being tinged there. So, like, we see that how important emotion is to each of these people. I think a big part of getting that message across and this was kind of shocking for me, is like how dark the opening of this book is. Yeah. I think this really bears... Like, I remember previously, I think... (laughs) It's funny how it's like the young adult ones that this really seems to come out on. Because I think previously we thought maybe The Amazing Morris or maybe that Mm -hmm. one moment in Nightwatch, uh, the interrogation rooms, like one of those were like one of the darkest ones. But there are moments in this that are really... Like, I mean, he talks about domestic violence and that story he tells she tells her dad about the woman who was getting eaten by her own cats. That's the stuff of nightmares, you know? Yeah, yeah. The reason that he sets this up in the beginning, like all these terrible stories and how Tiffany has kind of already lost a part of her childhood very, very early on because she has to engage with these things. She has to confront death. She has to confront domestic abuse. She has to confront, like, the worst facets of humanity in this job. And this is why he's doing that, because he's showing that, like, she's already in a certain danger of losing her humanity Mm -hmm. for the sake of this job. So I... this This is one of those points where, like, one of the parts of this book is expertly done. Like, I think the opening of this book is really exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the the rough music is a bit of an awkward metaphor that's lent on a yeah. bit too heavily, but, but it speaks well. Like, you get the idea, and I think the idea is a good one, of this sort of powerful snowball effect of, like, self-policing vigilantism, of, like, violence breeding violence. That, like, you know, just this kind of, once this initial very understandable anger takes hold in the community about what Mr. Petty has done to his wife and daughter and would-be grandchild, that it will just lead to, you know, will kind of grow and grow and lead to to worse and worse impulses. And, you know, that ultimately, while it's something kind of understandable, it's it's not, you know, justifiable, and we, we need to be better than that. It's sort of 
brings you back to that part at the end of Hogfather where Death talks to Susan about how like mm. humans believe in ideas like the Hogfather to believe in big concepts they've made up like mercy and justice that aren't like inherent things they have to they sort of have to be believed in the work you have to kind mm. of you can't just rely on a natural justice or a natural mercy coming to the fore you have to work for them in many ways in, in the Hogfather it's obviously true kind of belief and wonder and fantasy and here it's kind of true a role like that of the witch like someone like who we've seen Tiffany and, and Granny express it before of you're out on the edge making these decisions people don't want you know she has to get there first and nick this in the bud somewhat so all of those people who are coming around to Mr. Petty's door with stakes and pitchforks don't become worse people who've you know just like like uh, attacked, attacked and killed a man ultimately to no end like I'm not defending what he done but it's not mm. like it would kind of you know give life back into the baby he's killed or take any of the trauma away from his 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 wife or daughter yeah that's a really interesting moment I think because that's it's not simple but like that section of the book really dissects a lot of facets of like human nature that I just found absolutely fascinating like like that that example is a really good example like when someone has committed like a terrible act like what do people do in the face of that like and it's it is interesting like see this is something that you see all the time like in well when I say in real life I mean now the way we are now we're living everything through online social media but the way you see people react to certain things like there's a lot of a lot we see a lot of virtue signaling like you know going around like people saying like oh well that was wrong these people need to be punished and like I wouldn't like I, I don't think this is something that applies to the novel itself but it's just something I found myself thinking of that like a lot of people will do this just to like show everybody hey by the way I want everyone to know that I'm a righteous person because I think this is bad but they're not doing it in such a way that they can improve the situation which is something mm-hmm. that does come up in this book I think it's also really interesting the bit that when she's talking about when she's in the prison and she's thinking back on like the people she knows and like she's thinking back on the woman that they thought was a witch who they burnt down her mm-hmm. house and um, you know let her freeze to death how unusual a feeling it is to see people that you know people that you might even consider friends doing terrible things like that and that is something that really got to me when I saw that because it's it's that classic Christmas dinner scenario you know when you're like oh god it's here's where my uncle starts telling these racist jokes and I find myself thinking (laughs) like am I going to let it slide or am I going to have this awkward conversation you know and like this is something that comes up again and again like how many times in this book do you hear Gard saying I'm just following orders when they're putting her in jail or you know like it's it's a prevalent theme in this book where like constantly where we find people like their morality is put to the test where they're kind of sitting back and like let letting things go along and like how you know he, uh, Terry Pratchett kind of lets us sit on that like you know he doesn't he, he actually isn't very explicit about it I think that like he never says like hey the people who like are just following orders are they bad people but you know it's there do you know what I mean yeah yeah it's, it's you kind of see how sort of relate to that old adage about all it takes for you know evil to be done is for good men to do nothing mm-hmm. um, how easy it is for people who aren't actively malicious to be swept up in forces that I suppose are, are largely beyond their control, but also that on some level they're choosing not to 
tried to control or tried to stem the tide on in any way. Mm. There's some messiness there as well, I feel, where, where like there's a part where she speculates about what would like why any of the guards listened to the Baron and like what would happen if they tried to like essentially she's kind of speculating about a sort of like workers' revolution and it's like, ah, it probably wouldn't work. And it's just like it sort of struck me as a more misguided version of, you know, when you have those jokes in like uh, chiefly in watch books, I think they come up a couple of times in mice where like people in Agmorfork sort of entertain the idea of democracy and are and like, Pah, no, that's so silly. But it's not done in a way where like it's done in a way where you feel like we as the readers are meant to get that extra bit of perspective of like yeah. you know, that they're living in this very different world. But this almost feels I suppose like it's in there to kind of address uh, if the reader's wondering like, oh yeah, like maybe they'd be better off without a Baron because like the Baron's just origin for us Tiffany. It's like, oh no, no, they definitely wouldn't be but without really saying you know, without really working hard to explain why, ex- like all the more undermined because, as you said, you have this like recurring element in the book of like how these like you know forces beyond people kind of sweep them up and 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 cause them to you know, commit evil deeds essentially. And not that that wouldn't happen. I mean, as we've certainly seen in real life, you know, if someone else were to seize power, that could very well happen again. But it just feels like an odd kind of an odd way to like I, how would you put it like I feel like either don't bring that up at all or bring it up and deal with it more substantially than kind of like this this sort of throwaway speculation from, from Tiffany in a book where we've seen the current power structure I suppose questioned extensively like if you're going to do that why bring up an alternative and then just dismiss that alternative when you've shown that the status quo is very problematic in itself you know yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really think of it that way. I kind of felt like it was raised by Tiffany just to kind of have it floating in the reader's mind and, like, it wasn't really the focus of the book. No, no, it's not. It is one scene, but but I just mean that, like, why float it in the reader's mind if this isn't where the book is going to go, you know? Mm, yeah, I mean, I get yeah, I get where you're coming from because there are, like, a lot of ideas like that floating around and, as you, like, in the second half of the book in particular things get a little bit bloated and like sort of aimless like we know what the ideological message that is trying to like come across is in terms of like holding on to humanity and also that evil can be like nurtured within people like if they do nothing etc etc but like the actual action of the narrative it, it kind of like goes in a couple of directions and it's sort of aimless the momentum gets a little muddy towards the end. So I, I do get what you mean when something like that is kind of thrown up and just kind of left to hang. It can it kind of kills the momentum a little bit. It doesn't help as well, actually, that there's several moments throughout where like uh, Tiffany is kind of frozen in time for S just to give her some exposition. Like I mean, yeah. it's it's I I know like the first time she showed up and I was like, hey, it's Esk, yay, that person from like the past, hooray! But I realized as it like happened, I think it's the third. I think she only does it three times, but he was already in the second time. I was like, okay, you're literally just giving us information and then unfreezing. Like it's kind of s Deus esque mask machina. <laughs> yay! <laughs> but like no, like wouldn't you agree that even though like esque is great well she's fan service and like it's great the first time her role really is there just like for exposition more than anything else and yeah yeah i would and it sort of undermines two things like one the kind of ticking clock momentum that's generated by that scene where uh tiffany sees the cunning man in the book and then he knows where she is and 
he know she knows he's coming. From there, you have this momentum of like, okay, we're definitely hurtling towards a final confrontation, and mm. for time to literally stop, it kind of undermines that sense of like that she's she's breathlessly scrambling t- towards a, a climax she isn't sure she's ready for and secondly it undermines that message that you mentioned earlier about like Tiffany feeling I have to do this on my own and I could never be a proper witch if if I if I sought out the, the help of the other of, of the other witches on this and had them step in which as you said I, I think is something that like in a, le- in a lesser writer in a lesser work could be really cliched of just this like completely contrived reason as to why the main character goes it goes it alone you know that almost seems selfish like you can imagine in another work where it's like no i've got to do it and it's like well hang on but if you don't do it we're in real trouble so aren't you morally <laughs> obliged to seek all the help you need you know mm. but at like uh, because the way in which we've seen tiffany grow throughout these the way in which we've had the role of the witch defined and discussed you really do understand why and because in, in confronting the cunning man she's kind of trying to not only save herself but save witchcraft to save witchcraft she has to act wholly as a witch and do it independently you know mm-hmm. without help from these older more experienced people so that, I think that's something that's really good but it's kind of undermined by the fact that Esk is just showing up to give her advice now obviously as we see throughout the book it isn't a wholly uh, one thing or the other thing, you know, it isn't like mm. either she, you know, she gets all the help in the world from the other witches or she goes completely alone, like she does talk to Granny and Nanny about this and obviously she talks to Esks and Mrs. Proust, but it feels like I suppose it feels a bit crossing the line to have Esks like stop time and give her these, uh, give her this bit of help, you know, it's almost like what happens in some video games where you keep getting something wrong and uh, <laughs> like a kind of in-game helper will step in and you know, tell you, like, well, here's what you should do. You know? Yeah, it definitely killed it a bit for me. But this is the thing, like, I'm, I'm, this is a weird one in that, like, I can't honestly say that I love this book, but I definitely liked it, is the thing. Like, because there's a lot yeah. of stuff that it does right. I, I especially, more than anything else, I really like, like, the idea of where evil comes from. And, like, the way this is examined from, like, several different perspectives. One that I really enjoyed is um, the cook who falls down into the cellar and accidentally kills herself. And, like, moments before, you know, she's berating uh, Tiffany, like, abusing witches, saying that, like, you tried to steal from, like, the Baron and, like, giving her, like, really horrific abuse. And there's this wonderful moment where uh, Tiffany's second thoughts kick in, or third thoughts maybe, and saying, quick, remember that the cook lost her husband only seven months ago, and remember that she's on a job where she has to pay for all the, her children to, like, you know, get be fed, and she has no support, and, like, you know, she's going through all these things, like, trying to remind herself why this woman mm-hmm. might be, like, you know abusing her in this way and I love that moment because it reminded me of um, an interesting conversation I had like quite some time ago now I'm not even going to go into what the entire conversation was because it was quite dark but basically someone I know was a hard right conservative and they were complaining about left-wing liberals and saying that like so often they have dealt with uh, people like people that Sorry, I'm getting a little bit muddled. So often they have dealt with left-wing liberals who have just, like, not listened to conservative arguments whatsoever and just being, like, you know, I just shouting people down and they've been, like, some of the most violent and, like, unforgiving people ever. And I just found that interesting because 
even though I myself would consider myself quite liberal, I have found that sometimes to be the case. Some people will just like literally say, okay, this is the side I want to be on because, you know, it's kind of virtual sig- signaling again. And like, they won't even consider like an alternative viewpoint. Like they just say, oh, it's conservative. Well, it must be wrong. And like, while I ultimately disagreed with that person's end point, I still thought that was an interesting point to bring up that like, you know, a lot of people won't, you know, engage properly with other people, people who are like causing them hardship. They won't like consider what it's like to be in their shoes, you know? Well, there's there's no one's like truly rational or objective, right? And when we're talking about kind of abstract political arguments, whether it's right left wing politics in, in the real world or kind of like the, the role of, of witches in, in the disc world, people are bringing their own baggage to that and whether that baggage is like experiences they've had or just how they're feeling that day because of any amounts of things like you know other stresses other other worries that's all going to factor into it both in how they communicate their arguments like in the case of as you said in the book it's what like tiffany kind of trying to remind herself well this woman's really upset and furious at me but she's also got other reasons to be really upset and furious that are being vented towards me like she you know she may not even realize it herself um, or whether that manifests itself in how we listen and engage with other people, like certain things where, you know, it might seem like in an instance you're shouting down a particular argument without giving it due attention, but it may be a case that you've heard this thing a dozen times before, listened to it then, mm. found it to be wanting, or found it to be something that is abusive or hurtful or whatever in some way. Again, what, what I mean to say is with all this is, it's a thing most of us should be try to be more aware of of when we get into these arguments about any kind of abstract philosophical political social discussion beyond our immediate selves is that we're also bringing our immediate selves and experiences to it right mm-hmm. and that we can't presume to be objective or presume that the person we're speaking to should or will be objective but there's a big difference between logically knowing that and being able to think it in the moment and kind of you know react appropriately yourself like when someone's shouting at you like this cook is to tiffany being able to say oh no but i know she's worried about a lot of other things and this isn't her fault like and and not just react angrily and defensively and shout right back at her you know Mm. so yeah i like that moment too where tiffany's trying to tell herself this but it isn't entirely successful like you know Mm, she's still part of her still feeling like i can't believe this old bag is like who the fuck does she think she is shouting at me in the same way of like we see these more human moments where she's kind of jealous and presumptuous about Letitia early on you know Mm. it's that like with with Tiffany there always is this balance of her second thoughts her third thoughts the perspective she gains as a witch versus just a very human subjective and emotional thought she has as a person you know Mm. Um, absolutely yeah so yeah I, I I like the moments where we see those in conflict I think the main lesson that one person could take from this book, and this applies to absolutely everybody listen, uh, everybody listening, be nice to people in retail. That's the main thing I think everybody <laughs> should. Because like, if you're ever having absolutely. like a moment where like you know you're frustrated that you know your local supermarket doesn't have that particular tin of beans that you really want, don't scream at the people packing shelves for the love of God. I, I my actually I was about to say please don't be a Karen, but I, even in that I don't want to be. I don't want to like you know I've immediately negated the argument that you just said because like that's a whole other kettle of fish as well. We're not 
properly even taken into consideration what goes through people's heads when they do have those horrible days. But generally speaking, if you can, be patient with people in retail and waitresses and waiters especially, for the love of God. Yeah, but but that like uh, it's it's very it's Jesus true. And we're we're a little way off Christmas now, but that's certainly uh, particularly around Christmas time. It's it's a thing that can't be said enough. Yeah. Uh, say that as someone like yourself who's worked in a who's worked in retail. Yeah. But uh, that's like a part of me, part of the book that makes me like the kind of messiness of the book. In that it's sort of about the messiness of like trying to balance your role in the community. This role that requires you to kind of be on the edge and see unspeakable horrors and make very hard decisions in Tiffany uh, does as a witch with your kind of human wants and desires and, and needs as a person, both like biological with the her kind of not eating and not sleeping when she should be, but also emotional with like, you know, how she feels towards Roland and his new relationship and how she kind of feels towards uh, like the, the burgeoning feeling she's feeling towards towards Preston. So, like, I kind of like the messiness from that point of view and that, like, in opposition to it, you have the very single-minded hatred of the cunning man. But there are points, I suppose, where that messiness just feels a bit... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know know what you mean. Yeah, less less to the service of the book. Like, Like, with the cunning man, I think... Like, the idea that there is suspicion... And kind of an undercurrent of uh, mistrust and resentment against witches in the disc world is sort of one we've seen seeded very early on. Like obviously, you see it come to probably the most biggest place came to the fore prior to this was in um, Weird Sisters, where like the whole plot of it is that the, the Baron is trying to kind of turn the, the community against witches. But we've seen it elsewhere. We saw it with Tiffany's kind of origin story, I suppose, with that old woman who, as, as you mentioned, she thinks of here, who's uh, house was burnt out after the Baron's son went missing, just because she seemed a little unusual. Um, and we've seen it pop up in other places, like I think in Witches Abroad, with some of the places that you know they they travel to are less familiar with witches and more suspicious of them. With kind of like true Lilith's very binary myopic vision of like the good fairy and the wicked witch, we see that this idea of the wicked witch, for all that we as readers have gotten used to, kind of good witches through the Tiffany books and through the Lunker Coven books we see that that idea is very much in play in the in the disc world so the idea of the cunning man kind of tapping into and exacerbating this suspicion and this resentment like like there's definitely a lot there to play with but at the same time it, it, it sort of feels like it comes out of nowhere you know like yeah. well, no, maybe not out of nowhere is too strong if putting it too strongly but in that, like, this tidal wave of suspicion against witches, we, we sort of feel like, oh, hang on, were things really that bad before? You know? Mm. what We see it... This is putting it into crude away, but if you imagine the kind of, like, if you try and quantify it and imagine the sort of background level of simmering suspicion and resentment against witches among certain people at, like, a level 10 for most of the books... It's like the cunning man arrives and rockets it up to level kind of 50 and it would be more satisfying to see it kind of build either through maybe legitimate or like social forces like maybe there's mm. some new religious sect that's playing it up, you know. Like I found it odd with, with the nurse Miss Bruce when she's she's using very kind of religious arguments against I'm like, hang on, was this... Was this a thing before? Like, were they, were they talking about this in small gods or whatever? Like, like his, his hatred of witches. Like, it certainly makes sense. I mean, in the, 
in 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 real life religion, like it historically, you know, mm-hmm. that they've kind of that there's been suspicion arising against witches. But within the disc world, we're like, I, I found myself scratching my head, thinking, oh, this is sort of like you know, I haven't I haven't really seen this side of zealous Omnians or Offlerians or or whatever religion this woman's meant to be. So it, it sort of feels like we're kind of, I suppose, skipping a step in getting from the the normals, the seeds that have been planted there about suspicion against witches to the level of bile-spewing hatred that the cunning man is is mm. bringing when, when he arrives. You know what I mean? I do, and I agree with you completely. I'll tell you one part of the book that I actually didn't like at all was there's a moment, I think, when... Esk is explaining about the cunning man and she says oh yeah he showed up many times before I think Granny Weatherwax uh, defeated him once and I hated that I really wish that they hadn't said that because like for me like like we we've read like so many books about witches before and the fact that like the cunning man has never been mentioned before but apparently he has been a part of Granny Weatherwax's history just it felt it it smelled a little like it's not, but it smells a little bit like retconning, a little bit, you know, mm. like, oh, this is such a big deal. This played a part in Granny Weatherwax's life at one stage. Like, whoa. But it just, it didn't feel significant. It didn't feel like a necessary part to include. And, like, obviously, we were supposed to react to that. Like, you know, it's like, oh, Granny Weatherwax fought at once. Like, wow. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy that bit. But one thing I will say is, like, the skipping a step thing, I, I feel sort of plays into the cunning man's portrayal a little bit. Like, uh, one thing I did enjoy about him, and, like, I, it was when I was reading up on the, the general themes of the book and that sort of thing, that, uh, so a, a big part of this is how, like, uh, you know, this hatred can kind of poison people, and, like, the idea that, like, you know, hate can blind people, so the idea that the cunning man, like, with his eyes being missing, it's the idea that, like, you know, we can get so irrational when something like hate or grief or fear like infects us. So that's why I feel like they didn't go do the gradual thing, even though I feel like it would have played, it would have worked better in a narrative sense. I I can kind of see how it's portrayed as more of a very sudden kind of blinding rage sort of thing, you know? And like suddenly people are like, yeah. I I suppose I I just thought it would be, um, and again, like a, going back to the point I made about how we're, we're unable to divide ourselves from our own personal experience with all about these things we're recording this like in uh, early January 2021 and obviously you kind of biggest mm-hmm. story in the news um, other than the, the seemingly ever present pandemic has been the mob that attacked the, the US Capitol building mm-hmm. and a lot of the reaction to that and I include myself in this has been like I suppose almost annoyance at this being portrayed or perceived as something sudden when it's like this is clearly you know, the result of conspiracy theories and hate-mongering that has been happening for some time, right? Mm. And and this is the kind of, like, ultimate and really shocking manifestation of it. And I, I sort of feel it would be more, like, given that, you know, I'm not asking that Pratchett should anticipate something like that as happened years after yeah. he's, he's died. But, I mean, just giving that as an example of how, sort of, I suppose, like, of hate-mongering and fear-mongering operates... I think it will be more satisfying it is to see, okay, yeah, the cunning man is essentially irrational and he's a kind of supernatural thing in that, like, his mere presence is just making people more suspicious and more angry. But I feel like it will be more satisfying to see that build a bit. And and you do see it in the sense of, like, 
characters like Miss Proust kind of referring to oh things have been getting worse for like the last while but I, I say like we have like very early on we have the characters of the, the nurse Miss Spruce and that, that cook who rages at Tiffany and, and like what you were saying I like the confrontation with the cook because of how Tiffany's kind of conflicted in her own mind of how to deal with it but what what that does mean is like our kind of early confrontation with this new suspicion of witches is pitched very high. You know, it's kind of yeah. like spluttering hatred and accusation, and and it would probably I think it would be more satisfying if we saw that build a bit more. Where like kind of like that scene in in um, in Weird Sisters where they're in the road and like a cart goes down and and McGrath and Nanny are saying to Granny, "Get off the road!" She's like, "No, no." We're witches. People stop for us, and then they have to pull her off the road before she's almost hit. Oh, and yeah. it's not—it's not portrayed like a hit and run, like the person was trying to kill her, but more of like this is a sign that the level of respect people have for witches is dropping. And it—that—that that isn't the ultimate point of it, but it's a sign of you've got to nip it in the bud now. And I think it would be more satisfying if we saw like stuff like the encounters with someone like Miss Spruce, who's a very kind of one-note character. Like she's just mm. like this you know, straw man that's there for Tiffany to kind of destroy with, you know, logical arguments and so on. If she was more, while still an unpleasant character, and while still someone who kind of, I suppose for the purposes of the plot, she does have to kind of set off this suspicion about Tiffany robbing and, and killing the Baron. But but if there was kind of something more recognisable in her, you know what I mean? Like, like Don, yeah. her just coming in at the moment as like, spewing hatred and bile and, and suspicion against Tiffany and by by proxy all which is that you saw mm. more of a build more of a sense of escalation towards what we can only imagine of, again that would neatly dovetail like what we can imagine as the ultimate end of the cunning man is sort of what we've seen at the start of the book with the mob going to get Mr. Petty but mm. on a much wider level and directed at, at witches rather than domestic mm. abusers so yeah. it, it would be nice to have those kind of seeds planted and watch them sprout and grow and and, and Tiffany starts off them done it sort of feels like we're we're, we're dropped in, in in the middle of that yeah and also we, I was kind of then unsure about like I, I suppose eventually the the business of Letitia cursing Tiffany kind of addresses this as like that's what set him free because I thought when I was reading it that it was something to do with the Fiegel breaking the the, the crystal ball disco ball thing because they break it and he shows up right mm. and then for a good while until Tiffany meets Esk she's wondering like who is this guy where did he come from and because we've seen mirror magic be something really significant with the mm. uh, witches before most notably in um, Witches Abroad I thought it was something to do with like this device in the, the mirror ball that was like all these different images that was being shattered and that set him free mm. but then when we when we get to Hank Morpork Mrs. Proust is talking about you know that people have been growing progressively more disrespectful and suspicious of witches with the children throwing, throwing their rocks at her shop so then I was thinking okay this has been happening a while um, so I, I think it's cleared up in the end with like the timeline of when exactly it was that Letitia cursed Tiffany and that's kind of what released him but I wasn't 100% sure on that no it's um, there's actually a moment where they mention uh, when Tiffany kissed the wintersmith and uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, so it's it's 
Now, I do agree with you because, like, it isn't very clear. It isn't well explained in this book, like, exactly what when it is, like, he comes about or, like, how or anything like that. It just kind of seems like a vague presence. And the fact that, like, we're not really told how he's been defeated in previous incidents, we don't really know what happens to him when he's defeated. Like, he's just, like, they say that he's always there. And I get, like, what they're trying to do with that is, like, plant the idea of like people are always going to like be uh victims of their own like you know mm-hmm. uh hatred or fear or whatever like that so for that reason he's always there but as a physical entity that makes him really hard to get a grip on like you know like w- where does he come from when did he start all this stuff it, it makes him very fuzzy and sort of frustrating um, I think the way it's it's explained here is that like he's kind of floating in the background i.e in people's fears and hatreds and prejudice about people. And it's when she kisses the wintersmith, he kind of perks his head up and says, oh, there's a really powerful witch here because they kissed what is basically a deity. And mm. I think that's the implication. And he's looking for her. And like the thing is, I don't know what it is the curse does. I, I like It almost feels like the curse is separate in a way. Like, I think he... It's... He gets... He... So, it's the book that he wrote... And I, 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 I can't remember what it is like because I know when she opens it the second time, Tiffany herself, that's when the cunning man sees her and knows where she is. But when Letitia actually does the curse on it, I almost feel like that's uh, like that actually is a curse and it might not be because of the cunning man. It's just not very clear, really. Like we know that she used a book that the cunning man wrote and so that in some way mm-hmm. he's kind of involved in this but it seems like a really abstract kind of Letitia was jealous so that's why she cursed her and you know the cunning man is kind of representative of all things like hate and fear and jealousy and all these things so he's kind of involved with that but this is kind of separate it's very muddy and I just wish it was clearer explained but yeah, yeah, and admittedly, you, you've jogged my memory completely on the wintersmith thing. I'd forgotten about that, but but I feel as if, and again, this could be my memory playing me up too. That um, like what, when that's initially mooted, it's kind of mooted as a bit of a mystery. Like we know it had something to do with you kissing mm. the wintersmith. What you what could have happened? Like, and Tiffany wonders about it, and I don't know if we ever find out exactly. You know, like I don't kissing the so. wintersmith is kind of presented as step one of some process that you know led to the cunning man manifesting but we don't find out what the other thing and then as you said with the course we get this then alternative explanation for how he came out which like it's hard to see whether that is part of the business with the like is it like that like had she not kissed the wintersmith like Letitia's course wouldn't have worked or would have been this very minor thing and it was yeah it's sort of there's a fair bit of messiness with him like as as vivid an antagonist as he is and he does mm. result in some great moments and as we've already said does tie into some of the themes of the book very well and tie into kind of Tiffany's journey as a witch and as a person very well there's certainly messiness like I always found uh, well always it's the first time I read it but I suppose something that lingered with me afterwards was the introduction of like the serial killer chap he possesses at the end sort of you know kind of contrived and just happens a bit too late and I was mm. like thinking would would Mr. Petty be a better ve- like vehicle or Ooh, vessel for that? I hadn't even the, thought um, of that that would have been possessed. brilliant I mean frankly it always feels and, and it's I've been lucky enough not to be in any kind of like 
like abusive relationship either romantically or like in my kind of you know family life mm. so i'm not gonna be quick to pour judgment on like oh someone you know how could you ever forgive someone like that and it's a horrible ending the fact that we see mr petty with his wife again she should definitely leave him like who knows maybe there is you know there like there are people kind of i suppose people have their own um prerogative to forgive and to to accept that that people can change but because we don't see very much of that it still feels sort of awkward that you see see him at the end and it's like so is is he still beating her or i hope not you know like, yeah it's um, that would it would kind of um neatly take away from that where you don't have to either have the kind of mob justice that tiffany is trying to avoid of like someone in the village or a group of people killing him but you also don't have to wonder so so what he doesn't run away what what ends up happening to him mm. and and again it would neatly bookend the fact that the mob justice she's trying to stop at the start is essentially what the cunning man is kind of feeding into and mm. um, that that sort of poisons go or poisons welcome spiraling hatred blinding uh, effect of of hatred yeah i just think it would be a lot neater than like we suddenly hear about this chap like in the tanti which i mean I, I this this idea of like the kind of black cells of the tanti it reminds me of that that scene in in uh, the Silence of the Lambs you know where Clarice Starling is going down to meet Hannibal Lecter and oh, you're yeah. seeing like these are like the baddest of the bad most unstable people I I kind of like the idea of there being a Discworld equivalent of that and sort of in the sense of like oh imagine the Watch go you know having to deal with this or like Moist or or like William the Ward and Saturation like just imagining this playing a part in an Ang Warpork set book I was kind of excited by but mm. it just sort of felt like an awkward fit here for it to suddenly be introduced yeah it's it was I mean it's it's the old problem in in a certain sense of like uh, Terry Pratchett's uh, problem with antagonists this one like I I, I wish I'd thought of like you know the idea of Amber's father as a villain because I really think that's a stroke of genius there but like Conversely, like the, I really didn't enjoy like the serial. Like he's not even given a name, which like I get. Like he kind of just wants like it's a serial killer. Like it's 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 like as it's like when someone is looking. Okay, we need someone to be the bad guy. Let's make him a Nazi. No one has any issues with that. Everyone knows Nazis yeah. are bad. You know, it's that kind of thing. But like I also didn't really think. The, uh, um, well, apparently not everyone does. As we've been uh, well, recently, yeah. <laughs> but no, no, I I see your I see your point in that. It's this very like quick and easy way of just signaling like you don't have to think anymore about this person they're just a baddie but i also feel like he didn't do a great job in setting him up either because uh this is something that i think do you remember when mrs proust is going to like see him like they asked her to come mm-hmm. check this out and saying you're not going to believe what he did and like you know it's like it's absolutely unimaginable and like even at the end they say like the worst thing like you know you did was have the serial killer kill his bird and I'm like, oh, that, yeah, yeah, that fell completely flat for me. Too. Yeah, I, I, I. Now maybe it just means I'm a heartless person, but I just didn't really get the significance of that. Like, I mean, I think they were trying to sell it as like, you know, the bird was like the prisoner's only companion in the tanty or something like that, and he just like snuffed out the life of his only friend or something. But like, I just can't really picture like a serial killer getting all like soft and weepy over a bird. So like, it's like. 
he's killed a bird, okay, but he was a serial killer, you know? Like, that sold it to me, not the bird thing. I'm like, yeah. and like, just even that moment when, like, Mrs. Proust, when she arrives, she's looking at the floor, and there's, like, a great line. She's like, Mrs. Proust wasn't listening. She was looking at the floor, and I was like, holy shit, what's it going to be? What's going to be down there? Mm. And, like, when I found out it was just, like, the body of the bird, I was like, that's... I got nothing. That's nothing like, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what it's going for is, like, that it's, it's the last bit of innocence or mercy in a horrible person like this serial killer and that like the cunning man has somehow managed through his kind of myopic furious driven hatred against witches has managed to like kill even the last bit of tiny sliver of good in this most evil of people Mm. but that falls for me for one because the way it's set up where tiffany's like that's the worst thing you did and he the cunning man was never set up like a villain she would or could or considered reasoning with you know yeah like it felt like like a moment like did the, the hero kind of clarifies like like this could have gone another way i i mm. thought i could you know work this out but no you have crossed the line and now i'm I'm not going to hold back and, and you've brought this on yourself but the cunning man was never presented as a figure like that could be reasoned with secondly again as you said because this guy's presented as a serial killer it, it's it's really hard for us to imagine that he can sink any lower right yeah, exactly and yeah. and i i can kind of see like i can imagine an alternative book where like this idea is introduced much earlier and we have recurring scenes in the tanti with these horrible people who have somehow still managed to find some kind of care towards these tiny animals and we sort of see that while that doesn't redeem them it keeps alive this tiny ember of humanity and of compassion Mm. in them when they have willingly lost so much else of it by killing and and doing god knows what else and that then when we get to the scene where it's killed it does represent something more meaningful but because we only see the board essentially the board is killed in the same scene that this whole concept of these you know worst of the worst baddest of the bad criminals having that board is introduced to us it falls flat then because we're you know we we hardly have time to get the grips with like what that means and what the significance of it is before it's you know before the board is killed and it's suddenly being presented to us as like oh this is the most horrible terrible thing this mm. is the uh, the moment he crossed the line. There's also the like the idea that the cunning man just possesses people like so like that that as well kind of negates the whole idea of like snuffing out his humanity because you're like yeah but he's not even in control anymore he's just taking him over so like who cares if like he's snuffed out his humanity he's like literally been taken over by the cunning man so unless it's like more of an idea of like not necessarily controlling every aspect but like the cunning man is more a voice in his head telling him to do things then that would make sense like why that would be significant but I didn't get that impression I just got the sensation that the cunning man literally jumps into their head and controls the body and that's it yeah yeah that there's no like he's not at some point if he beat Tiffany he's going to hop out and mm. this fellow's going to be left back thinking oh my god what have I done you know yeah. and have to live with the consequences of what he done under the cunning man like we don't yeah it's not really made clear whether that's going to be the case now, I suppose we can kind of infer because his end game is to possess Tiffany that that would happen but it's not clear that like if he left the body of this guy that wouldn't just kill your man you know leave, leave mm. him a shell when he goes to Tiffany the, the other thing with him too is I think like like I, I like the sort of wild ticking clock momentum of like she knows he's coming. I like the kind of weird clash of tones in that like 
the moment in which she has to confront them is also the moment in which like Letitia's trying to find Roland who's been left tied to something on a wild stag mm. do and this like weird kind of horrible mashing together of like comedy and drama where you know you can imaginatively stick it like oh, for all the fucking times for this to happen you know <laughs> but but I've just got to deal I've got to save these people too like I like all of that I like the I suppose the the scene setting to set mm. up that final confrontation in the, in the king field but her defeat of him is really straightforward like you know she she has this plan that Preston will set the field ablaze and she'll run out and he'll be burned and while then we, we have the initial hitch of oh no Letitia and Roland are here she's going to have to save them too mm. and then she just does and yeah. like it you know it, it goes off without a hitch and it's very much of a contrast with like think of say you know in guards guards we have that like long setup of like the million to one shot that's going to take down the dragon and they mm. really think this is their last hope and then that doesn't work or in lords and ladies that like halfway through the book we get this moment where granny and nanny break up diamanda and her coven and seem to have foiled the mm. queen of the elves only way in it's like well that is that but you you as a reader are thinking no no it isn't because we've got half the book left so what's going to happen <laughs> like you're kind of expecting some sort of sting in the tail you know some sort of twist where like tiffany's plan will go awry and then she'll have to think on her feet and you know we'll get a more dramatic climax done than we do yeah, I kind of feel like there's something missing in the middle, like in, t- in narrative terms. There's one bit in the middle that I quite liked, and it's, this is calling back to um, when you were like lamenting how the the rise of like you know prejudice against wish uh, witches like it seems to skip a couple of steps. We either have like kind of bubbling like uh, low down to like absolute venomous hatred. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the best representations we see of that is actually in Ankh-Morpork because. It's it still misses a step. I want to get that very clear because like there it's there's there's a middle step missing here somewhere. But I like the idea of like you know everyone's kind of like ugh witches like it's 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 almost kind of like very casual racism going like you know people just like are looking at them with yeah. disdain and stuff like that. We have the scene with like the boy throwing rocks and all that. Like quite like. But the real highlight of it is actually the first time she talks to Roland. And I don't know about you, but like I was like quite shocked with like how he's talking to her like and like for at this point we don't really know that like uh the cunning man has kind of affected him or that like he's been cursed or anything like that. It honestly just seems like, oh my god, this is just how he's reacting to the news of his father's mm-hmm. death. And it's quite shocking because like he's talking to her as if like he doesn't realise that, you know, Tiffany is a very capable person who'd obviously do anything she can to help the Baron as she has done. And then he's just kind of completely disregarding that, saying, like, why didn't you do more? I thought witches were supposed to be good at this kind of thing. Why couldn't you help him? Why couldn't you save him? And it's like, it's quite a blow. Like, it's it's done quite well, I think, at in that moment. And, like, really underlined again by the presence of the Duchess, who is on the surface, like, I think, quite a simplistic character. She's maybe not as complex as uh, Letitia as it goes on, but, like... I like how she serves, like, not as an antagonistic force in herself, but she's kind of similar to the cunning man in a way in that she just makes things worse around her. Do you know what I mean? Like, specifically in scenes where it's, like, Roland and Tiffany uh, just, like, talking. And, you know, she's just constantly egging him on, saying, like, you can't let her talk to you that way. Yeah, yeah. To, to roll back to that moment with Roland you mentioned, I think another good part of that is, like, as we're approaching it, Tiffany is certainly nervous about it, but her nerves are more coming from, like, 
like, oh, of course it's hard to tell someone like his father's dies and he's got to go back and be new baron, but it's also oh, it's gonna be awkward. Letitia's gonna be there. She never like see expects like or considers that his reaction will be rage and rejection. Like his moment of like, what are witches for if you can't do this? Is something that's obviously born very much out of like irrational but understandable grief, but also is a kind of, I suppose, a, a grievance that you can imagine people in the child kind of feeling when this discontent against witches is bubbling up like oh yeah sure what do they really do like you know anyone they sure they go tend to sick but those people die anyway they don't save any of them mm. I think with Ankh-Morpork Park 2 there's something in it that's not fully drawn out in that like Ankh-Morpork Park's obviously at the forefront of modernity in the disc world like it's mm. you know it's the most urban most kind of uh, the setting where all these new developments like the, the newspaper and the post office and the clacks and all where they begin and witches in the kind of pastoral rural setting of Lankra and the Chalk um, are kind of at the other end of the spectrum of, of, of like Discworld culture and society so there's kind of a sense of like in the ultra modern Ankh-Morpork there's no place for a role like witches which by its nature is very unformalized and like not a written you know they're not kind of employed by anyone even the way they're paid that we see in in this book and in others about like where it's more this kind of sense of unspoken gratitude like you know you go and help someone's deliver their baby and they you know bring food around to you but you never ask for the food or set a price or anything mm -hmm. like that and they're not really beholden to anyone which you see when Roland orders uh, Tiffany's arrest and the guards kind of don't know they're like well he is our boss but we've never really been quite clear of th that we have any power over her uh, a role like that doesn't fit into Ankh-Morpork right where everything has to be regulated veterinaries at the top and you know like you got volumes under him and there's this clear chain of command and so on and so, so it sort of makes sense that like that's a place where people would just have no time or patience with witches, mm. and then with, with Roland taking over the chalk and he's full of new ideas, you kind of see a potential for like oh maybe the chalk will start going that direction too, you know, mm. and they'll try and become more modern and more regulated and not necessarily in a malicious way, but then they'll kind of they'll come to see witches as this uh, messy relic of of a past they want to leave behind, and it's not quite fully illustrated I suppose or drawn out as much as it could be like I think the, the scene with the uh, the soldiers trying to dig up the Fiegel mound is a really powerful scene but I think there is a trick missed in that like there is something there that like the Fiegel while they're essentially benevolent um, they do like cause a lot of chaos damage a lot of property steal things and it sort of makes sense that like Roland's you know there's a new broom sweeping through mm. things are going to be proper and ordered and regulated that his society wouldn't have any place for them and it feels like that conflict could be wrestled with more than like just like you have that one admittedly quite powerful scene and then you have at the end Tiffany kind of as a boon from Roland is like here look leave the fiddle alone would you and he's like okay yeah Grant you know mm. it, it, it feels like there could be something more interesting in exploring well how does a more a society that's trying to modernise how does it reconcile itself with these old wild chaotic elements mm. of its you know traditions like like the Fiegel and, and like witches how does it do that uh, with, with the Duchess I like the scene when when they go to uh, her and Letitia's manor and Letitia talks about how she always looks after the servants and that you have all these yeah. servants who like don't really have any 
useful function anymore, but are kind of given these like odd jobs just to keep them on the books and keep them in room and board. And like that's a very kind of noblest obligé, like the uh, idealized view of the aristocrat peasant relationship of oh don't worry they'll always look out for you which as we've seen throughout other Discworld books let alone real life doesn't always work out you know like that 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 relationship is rife for 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 abuse in some way but I think it then it it is a nice way of complicating our view of the Duchess where we've kind of hitherto seen her as the worst manifestation of like the aristocracy of someone who's haughty and self-important and you know is trying to set these really hard and fast boundaries between like the aristocracy and the lower orders of like you know how they should address them and so on but part of her very strict vision of the roles of the aristocracy and the, the peasantry does manifest itself in some benevolent ways as well like i'm not mm-hmm. saying this is a view of the world i'd subscribe to but it shows that like you you know she isn't just this wholly one-note villain right like that mm-hmm. you know that view she has that for most of the book we see is a very unpleasant one there are sides of it that are ultimately i suppose helpful and ultimately kind i really don't like the revelation that she used to be like a showgirl and has married her way into the aristocracy just because i think it's that you could theoretically really read a lot into this and say like oh this you know sending a very conservative message of like you know that the bad aristocrat isn't really an aristocrat at all and the real lesson is don't get ideas above your station she moved above her station and then she became a bad actor in the aristocracy you know um and proper aristocrats like roland and the old baron and letitia won't ever make those mistakes i think you could look at it that way that didn't really you know jump jump out at me like it did didn't really go what bothered me about it is just how kind of trite and cliched it seemed like the the old cliche of any prejudiced character like in her case class prejudice is revealed to be repressing what they purport to hate like like they, they, i think the the classic cliche i'm thinking of is when you have a homophobic character exposed as oh look he or she was actually a repressed closeted homosexual or you know bisexual or whatever and not not that that doesn't happen and not that there aren't interesting ways of exploring it I just I don't feel this is an interesting example of doing it and I just kind of feel it's too trite glib way of cleaning up like oh this is why she's actually that unpleasant you know don't don't think about that anymore it's been I know what you mean and it's especially when taken hand in hand with the way she treats her own like you know servants and that sort of thing like it does it it it, it's kind of at odds with each each other like because I can't understand why she would be like she would treat her own like people this way um but Mm -hmm. like when she gets to Roland's place, I was trying to figure it out. Like, and I was thinking like, is this, is all this bullying like born from fear or something? Like, cause there's that bit at the end where she shows some real emotion where, um, Oh yeah. About, about Letitia leaving. And yeah. that's lovely as well. That's a really nice moment. And, mm. and again, it's that divide that we see it's real much richer than through Tiffany of the divide between the role of the person and their, their human emotions. Humanity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, for most of the book she's performing the role of the duchess mm. and here we're seeing that the woman the mother beneath but to be honest with the way she acts towards roland's uh servants and, and staff in the castle i didn't see it as wholly contradictory with her kind of benevolence back home because i can still imagine her being really strict with this idea of like you know you're a servant i you know don't you have to don't look me in the eye, or, mm. while also see, seeing, but you're a servant, and that means I'll take care of you, right? Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I can imagine her staff that she is looking after, she's also very 
quite strict with them, mm. but ultimately benevolent. Uh, or you could also see it as like, because she, her whole attitude towards Roland seems to be like, ah, you know, this place has really been left to rack and ruin and look at the servants getting ideas with their stations, that she's being much more strict than she necessarily would be in a place where she feels secure, you know, mm. that she's kind of saying like, to establish the relations I want with the servants, I have to kind of really come in hard and fast. Okay, I'm not defending like really unpleasant, horrible person for most of it, but I, I can kind of see her thought process. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem contradictory to me. But yeah, thanks for that moment of of her kind of getting weepy, but uh, Letitia leaving is is really nice, and again mm. ties into some of the other themes of, of the book. Yeah, and I quite like how Letitia kind of reconciles with her a little bit as well because there's a few moments before where, like, the relationship between Letitia and the Duchess is quite an interesting one because, like, it's complicated in that it is, like, a loving mother-daughter relationship as, like, expressed uh, through that moment and also the way Letitia emphasises, like, the way the treatment of their own uh, help in their own castle. But obviously there is a lot of tension there as well. Like Letitia like shows a lot of res- a bit of resentment as well because she wants to be a witch and like she's kind of not pointedly but kind of like in an abstract way been denied the opportunity to be a witch because she can't she has no opportunity to practice like any of her skills that might lead to uh that. And like she has no opportunity to meet with Miss I'm trying to remember the name of the witch from the first one. Um the one who appoints Oh Miss uh, tick mistake yes like she has no opportunity to meet her because obviously she is a highborn girl so she is like going to be up in her tower practicing embroidery and so on and like again also she meets nanny og and she explains like some of the goings on of the honeymoon and what to expect and <laughs> tiffany like says before like because she's afraid that she's going to be the one who gets asked all these questions like what about your mother haven't you talked to her about it and says would you talk to my mother about these things (laughs) so like the relationship is an interesting one yeah and it's interesting that like it kind of harkens back again to that whole idea of like people you love or people you're close to doing things that like in this case not horrible but just being like abrasive or like not right but there's still people that you love you know it's it's one thing that I keep bringing it back to that because I keep thinking I think it's a really powerful scene even though this was brought up before in this scene I thought it was really good when they talk about the woman that they you know inadvertently froze to death by uh, burning down her house because I think uh, there's a moment where Tiffany says that she goes up to that site herself all the time and stops like what was it she says she stops grass from growing somehow she puts something on it I think she was it like grease or something? She put something on the grass yeah, there. Yeah, so like remain there as a kind of monument to, yes. to what happened. So that people remember. And like, I don't think that was mentioned before, but like, you know, it's really emphasized here that like, you know, these are people I work with. These are people that I help every day, but they still did a terrible thing. And it's just, yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. Yeah, I, I think too with, um, with Letitia, where she's sort of having this feeling of like, oh, you know, my life's going to be this miserable, empty one. I think it's nice then we have McGrath show up, which is about mm. tying into like, it's a pity we don't see her and Varen say, I really like the boat, I would like just a yeah. few lines. But her presence does act as like, for one, I think it's noted like, oh, how the Duchess is going to be so kind of pleased that like a, a king and queen are showing up. But also we have a, a queen who's also a witch. So mm. it's kind of like, in the background to Letitia of like, you don't have to be one thing or the other. You can be, you can be both. You can be your own 
mixture of them. Like, this is an option, you know? Like, this patch you feel your life's been on isn't the only one. It isn't... And, and you know, you, you're not stuck on it. Yeah. Speaking of, of cameos, what, what did you think of the watch cameos? It was a bit odd. Um, I, I felt Carrot and Angua were a bit stiff in this one now like I know that obviously they're kind of treating Tiffany as a potential criminal and this is kind of how they are portrayed in most of their books anyway but I felt there was something missing I I quite liked Vine's one as I said because it was just so quick hurried and it's kind of like I want to get this over with and the entire time he's on the page you kind of get the sense that Vimes doesn't really want to be there because he's got a million other things to do in fact I think they say that on the page as well and I'm like that kind of stands true to him I wasn't sure about I I I didn't hate it but like Tiffany or not Tiffany sorry Carrot and Angua didn't really jump out with me at all what about you yeah I mean on the one hand it's like you have a, a, a reason that's like very much tied into the plot for her to go to Angmorpork. So if she's there, like why not see some of the watch? It doesn't, it shouldn't feel too overindulgent. But because they don't do a whole lot, it does feel a little like fan servicey and one of those moments where like, I suppose where it, it means more to the audience than it does to the character. You know, like to her, mm. she's just meeting a policeman, a policewoman. But those mm. were like, oh my god. Yeah. The thing I didn't like about it is when you have both Carrot and Angua kind of be aware of this climate that of, of discontent against witches and sort of like tacitly help out Mrs. Proust Tiffany you know like basically mm. they say like you've got to get this sorted and we'll make sure you're out of cell and next day now look on the one hand if you're going to present them as being swept up in it you'd have to involve them a lot more because they're characters we know so well that we're thinking wow this thing's so powerful it's got them in its trial you know to this like uh, climate of fear. We we want to see how that's happened. So I understand why he didn't want to do that. But on the other hand, it kind of undermines the idea of the witches being this secret resistance line against the, the cunning man, while everyone else is mm. kind of being taken in by the hatred. Like it's just Tiffany and Tiffany and a few others that like will have to confront this thing because it's happening and sweeping everyone along with it. It's like if, if these other protagonists of other books can just show up and be like oh yeah so that's going on a bit less of a less of a threat you know Mm. than it would be uh than it would be otherwise yeah no i know what you mean yeah yeah it's 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 kind of something that i think has popped up before like cameos are something that they either have to be like very minimal so it's just it's literally just a cameo and you can go ah or like they have to be like be involved quite heavily to be satisfying like I remember one of my one of my favorite cameos in all of the books by far was uh, in the truth when uh, William DeWord met Vimes for the first time and we saw him from a very different perspective and I thought that was brilliant. Here it's kind of the same thing, but like I just feel like it's 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 the chief problem that this book has and it applies to cameos as well as like themes and ideologies. It's just, it's it feels like it's trying to pack far too much into it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how I felt as well about the idea of Wee Mad Arthur actually being retconned to be uh, Nack McFeagle. Like, it's an interesting idea, and I guess it kind of ties into the idea of, like, you know, the separation of, like, your job, your role versus, like, your humanity or who you really are. Because, like, you know, Wee Mad Arthur is allegedly, like, you know, a cop or a guard. So, like, uh, he does all these things that are completely adverse to, like, not his humanity, but his knack-mack-feagality. And that, like, you know, he washes all the time, you know. And 
that's the only thing I can remember that really sticks out when they talk about how he washes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't mind it so much because it kind of makes sense given the way mm. he's been presented before. But I do think there is a weird thing of like, at the end, you're almost left with the idea that he'll just go and join them. And like, like he's presented as very different from them. Obviously, he's a force for law and order, albeit mm. a cha- somewhat chaotic one. And they're kind of a force for, uh, you know, out- they're outlaws, yeah. essentially. And we have stuff like him talking about going to the opera. And I kind of thought, like, oh, that's a, you know, cute, funny little, like, contrast. The idea yeah. that you have to... He's like the, um, you know, in Gremlins, in Gremlins 2, when you have the one gremlin that's like really smart oh, and he's yeah, kind of yeah. on this talk show and stuff <laughs> he, he's like that you know yeah I but, get that yeah 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 but but then you're kind of left with the impression that like he's like sort of by meeting them he's kind of realising of like oh yeah I should be more like them like I've been kind of cutting myself up until now and I wasn't mad about that because I don't know I suppose it falls too heavily on the nature over nurture thing of like you know he's yeah been reared differently has different experiences different interests but he'll throw all of those out the window just when he you yeah. know sees these guys and it's like oh this is what i should be like it kind of runs contrary to what we see with characters like tiffany and like leticia where it's about like balancing your humanity with the role and job you have to do in society but understanding that that role and job doesn't necessarily have to be a very narrow one you know it doesn't have to be just this one particular thing it can be quite flexible and you know like kind of yeah sculpted to your own experiences it, it sort of runs against that and i do like that that is a, a key part of this like you know like it's it's not about like oh you have to make room for humanity you know humanity is important as well like i don't think that's necessarily what i'm saying it is about striking the balance between the two because like it's very easy to kind of muddle up the uh the message being that like your job isn't as important as your humanity it's like knowing when one is important when the other is important and being able to like balance the two and this is summed up really nicely i think in the end when um you know it's kind of heavily implied that esk and preston are going to like get together and preston says that like he's might be getting like apprentice as a doctor in ankh pork i says well it might be a bit too far to visit and it's a really it's not even like clever it's clever but in a way that isn't immediately obvious but like uh uh, Tiffany says well that's not f- that far by broomstick and it's just like yes you know like you found a way They'll to find like, a way yeah. you know they've they've married the two like the job and like personal life together in a way that like that works you know that, like this really really works and I just I love that line I thought that was so yeah. so good yeah. yeah that line that it closes with about like what does what does love sound like listen is you know kind of again it's all about sort of a, communication and finding a space in between your own wants and desires and, and mm. that of others and the people around you one one last thing just to say before we um move on to ranking this is uh, i absolutely love like the kind of little banter between tiffany and preston like i love how their little foible like the thing that they kind of show to have a problem is like their fascination with how words sound and i think it's i think preston at one point says uh there's a susurrus or a sus- oh, was that, is that a susurrus? That was the word that yeah, Tiffany said she right really liked. Yeah, of We Free Men. Yeah. yeah, she really liked that word. And like he says, oh, there was a susurrus through the room. It's like, oh, that's perfect. Uh, I just like that that little connection there. like Because uh, it's very easy to say that, like, you know, all these two characters like each other. For, like, for example, the way Roland and Tiffany are presented as liking each other is like, oh, well, literally, as they say in this book, well, they're both different from you know everyone else so therefore they must be the same when that's clearly not true at all mm-hmm. just quite like the chemistry between Preston and Tiffany like it's nuanced and very fuzzy warm and fuzzy <laughs> yeah yeah 
I know the fact that he's introduced relatively late on. I, I, I'm kind of out on that. I'm like on the one hand, it adds to the sense of messiness, but on the other hand, you can read that in a positive way, where it's just like, you know, you even though this novel has kind of quashed her relationship with Roland, you never even considered someone else would come in if they didn't come in immediately. And then mm. he does, and she almost feels at first, almost like the way the reader feels, of, well, this is nice, but I don't really have time for it, you know? Yeah. And then he kind of proves to be more sort of useful and more connected with the ideas that she's feeling and that by extension are significant in the book than you would have thought. Yeah. Which, uh, it's, it's quite surprisingly kind of deftly done. Yeah, and I like it. I just like that um, it's something that isn't doesn't intrude on like you know, on her job. It like we mm-hmm. said, like it matches the sense of balance that like you know the book is striving for. Like it's not like something that she has to constantly focus on. It's just something that happens to work out, and like you know she's finding a way without stressing too much about it, and it doesn't affect like you know how she treats other people. So yeah, I just I, I like I I like where it's going. So I'm not sure how it's going to play out in the last book but um here's hoping <laughs> yeah so all, all that being said i suppose we all that remains is to rank this 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 fella yeah um so we usually go for like you know the most the closest book in terms of like uh themes like so i think obviously with this one's i feel like it's the other tiffany books so the yeah. highest one that we have is Wintersmith. Yeah, so better or worse than Wintersmith? I don't think this tops Wintersmith, to be honest. I, I, I enjoyed that one an awful lot more, even though there's some really interesting ideas here and stuff that I like an awful lot. But I think Wintersmith just came together a lot better. What about you? Yeah, I think there's something more satisfying overall about Wintersmith. Mm. I mean, it's got similar things. Like, uh, as I said at the start, like a lot of the Tiffany ones have to their favor of that sort of messiness and unconventional like narrative structure well at least unconventional in the sense of like you know it, it, it teases the simplest way you could do this plot and then goes in a different direction you know like both of them do that yeah. and, and I, I like I like that but I just feel like Wintersmith ends up pulling it off with more aplomb like kind of by, by the end of it the climax mm. and stuff with the Wintersmith feels I know feels more significant and more earned and more appropriate than the is it the more straightforward dispatching of the the cunning man in the the field after he's taken over this kind of hastily introduced killer? Yeah, I feel I feel like the stakes in Wintersmith are very clearly established. Like whereas here, it's like we 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 didn't really know what was going to happen. Like you know, if things didn't go well with the the cunning man, so yeah, it's as you said. I'm going to move back to like what you said before. It's just like in this book. It adds up. There's a lot of good stuff in here, but it doesn't all come together. Like it's mm-hmm. not more than some of its parts. Should we go to the next one down or to the? No, Hatful I mean Sky? I. I, th- I still think it's it's good. So at the moment they got Wintersmith at twelve and Half of the Sky at sixteen. Between them, thirteen more, fourteen Men at Arms, fifteen Reaper Man. So are we imagining it fitting somewhere in between Wintersmith and Half of the Sky? See the thing, the problem with a hat full of sky is I remember being like so surprised by how good that was, and I'm wondering like because it's been a while since we've read it now, I'm trying to remember like was it all as justified as all that, or was it just because I was so surprised it was such a step up from week? Well, from I think it, it's a bit about like it is very good, but I, I do think part of its their initial reaction was colored by like oh wow, this is you know much more ambitious than than we for men. I I put. I shall wear midnight above it mainly because I I do feel like it's trying to do a lot more and yeah maybe not all of it it pulls off successfully but 
enough of it it pulls off really well that yeah. that would get it above it for me and I do think yeah because I remember at the end I remember thinking the ending of A Hat Full of Sky like even though like whereas I Shall Wear Midnight it's it's almost 50-50 because like the second half of the book does kind of crumble a little bit like it's still got good points in there but you can almost see the 50-50 split because the first half is so good and the second half it kind of falters with A Hat Full of Sky it's kind of like the last 10% or so I felt like stumbled a bit and I, I know what you mean, like, because I, I really love the themes of uh, I Shall Wear Midnight, like definitely more so than A Hat Full of Sky. But there are bits in A Hat Full of Sky that I thought were excellent. I remember like, and obviously this resonated a lot with me because I, I'm currently like in Japan away from family and friends. So oh, yeah, the homesickness and being taken out of time and place. I thought that was absolutely exceptional. It's... um. It's a tricky one because this is an argument we've had so many times before, like whether doing less but pulling them all together in such a nice way, is that better than, you know, trying to do so much more and it doesn't all come together? Like, which one do you rank there? I think there there are stuff we're sleeping on on Shower Midnight as well, which is um, just when you said the homesickness, it reminded me that it does do, I think, largely a good job of dealing with grief. And like after the Baron dies and kind of while well, Roland's initial kind of reactions are sort of tied into the wider plot stuff about the cunning man and him kind of playing upon Roland's feelings. The stuff we get like at like the funeral of the Baron and the way, you know, the way in which I suppose people feel they should act at funerals and what's ultimately healthy and, you know, to, to act and, and the purpose of, of funerals, I think, is, is kind of well dealt with. I think that I think that's good, but there's also some bits that are like I'm fifty fifty on. Like I th- I felt like um, Roland asks if you if Tiffany can, as well as taking away physical pain, can she also take away things like despair and sorrow and grief? And like you know, she's like, no, no, I can't do that. And like to a certain extent, I like the idea of that, but it's also a little on the nose. Oh, I like those depictions of Roland we get to when he's back at the castle and he's just kind of throwing himself into work to basically to avoid kind of processing mm. the fact that his dad's died. And it, it also ties in then, again, like with, with Tiffany, we get this conflict between your role and your responsibilities and then your, your individuality and your feelings. We get that played out like very uh, strikingly, but we see it play out with other characters. Like I mentioned, Letitia... Um, and the Duchess, but also with Roland, where like clearly his feelings towards Tiffany as a person and feelings towards her as a witch are very different, and both his feelings toward like his feelings towards her as Baron to witch and as Roland to Tiffany are very different, and his feelings towards his father dying as like a son to a father and a successor to a predecessor are very different as well, you know, and he he sort of has to he has to manage them. I, I can see where you're coming from. Um, it it's this is one of these things that it's, I think it's going to be quite subjective. That didn't hit me very hard at all. I, I like I think I can see like the differences between the two, and like I totally get like where you're coming from. That it does some very interesting work there because and it ties into the theme of like humanity versus roles and that sort of thing. Uh, but again, it just didn't resonate as strongly with me. I see. I personally, I think I'd rank a hatful of sky higher just because, like, it pay it pulls things all together nicely. But the thing is, now I'm looking at the ones in between. I'm like, I wonder how they rank there. Like, here's a good example. Actually, let's look at the one above mm-hmm. there. Look at Reaper Man because that kind of does 
that's kind of in a similar boat yeah, as yeah, um, I Shall Wear very Midnight. Very messy, but deals with some uh... really good stuff. I feel like hmm, I feel like this one is more ambitious than Reaper Man, but even messier than Reaper Man at the same time. Because like Reaper Man, I remember we could almost make a very clear fifty-fifty split between like all the things that are going on with death and like you know the meaning of life and what it means to be human versus all the stuff going on with the wizards and like how incredibly messy that was and how we just wanted to get back to death so like you know it's a very almost a very clean 50 50 split <laughs> in a weird kind of way i should wear midnight is similar but instead of it being two differing storylines it's just two halves of the book you know the first half does something really good and the second half Again, while it has those good moments in how we deal with death and like the ending is quite sweet as well, the whole thing with the villain is very messy. Uh, and like even and while the um, the bit with the wizards we might not have liked as much, I think we really enjoyed the metaphor of the yeah. shopping mall at the end as a sort of antagonist and also like the real death or the fake death, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it, the one that like our death has to go up against. We really enjoyed that as well. Well, it's, it's another one too, actually. It, it occurred to me when I was criticizing the, the end of I Shower Midnight that you had that moment in the confronta- the final confrontation of Reaper Man where he spends all the time making the new sky, you know, and he, you have that great moment of Miss Whitlow giving him his uh, her never-used wedding dress and he sharpens oh, it on that yeah, yeah. and then that doesn't work and he's got he's to do something... You know, different. He ends up using the sky he used for the harvest. It's kind of reminds you of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and how the um, Holy Grail is a simple wooden cup that they're kind of implying oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus carved as a carpenter. Uh, yeah, for me, this would I, I probably it's kind of ambition and the stuff it does right would elevate it above Half Full of Sky, which I think is very very good. And I mean, it's still at like when we're talking about numbers like 16 it might seem low down but 16 out of 37 you know it's still in the kind of the it's pretty much high, the, yeah. the, upper, the upper half but I would have it below Reaper Man because I just think well you're right to say like the stuff they have similar flaws Half of the Sky you could argue maybe it's like the, the, the messiness of Reaper Man is more stark because you can you have these kind of mm. three plot lines that seem related but kind of running on parallel tracks for much of the book before coming together right, yeah. but the stuff Reaper Man does right is like unbelievably good like you know like yeah, it has yeah. I, like I, I can't remember what age I was when I read that book but like like some of the scenes and bits of Reaper Man have stuck with me for years and years and I, I think of them now like the it actually has a conflict we see here with the, the a wonderful moment of like death knew that to preserve a life was to you know um uh, alter the chain of causality, blah blah blah. But the Bill Door that was so much horse elbows, and he goes in and saves the little girl. Yeah. Said, oh, I love. You know, that's my one of my favorite moments ever. I love that. I, I will get you a diamond to be your friend, like you know. Yeah. And then the bit when he's looking out at the cornfield at the end, and he's just like, Albert, don't you have somewhere else to be? Like, is, is you know, and and when he talks to Azrael, which both manages to be this grand, like fucking. Like like the, the most cosmically ambitious thing they've ever done in this world. Like uh, the only perhaps rival to it is that bit in Eric where they actually meet the creator of the universe. Yeah. So you have that balanced out with the like a wonderfully human appeal of like what does the harvest have if not for the Reaper Man and 
Mm. Oh, fuck, I really want to read this book again. Yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah I know. I, it's getting me. I, well, okay, okay we've established the 100. I've to him, so uh, I, it's one I don't have at home. Um, but yeah, so I, I would have uh, I, I'd have a, a both half full of sky below Reaper Man. Okay, well, just let's put a pin. Obviously, I'd be the same. I wouldn't rank this above Reaper Man, not by a long shot. But um, I think, and this is going to make it a little easier again, put a pin in a half full of sky, which is abroad. I definitely rank this above which is abroad. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. fair enough. So now here's the so I think it's down to a hatful of sky. I'm kind of arguing that like it'd be below a hatful of sky, and you're arguing it should be above. Um, mm. I think okay. I'm gonna try and make a bit of an argument for hatful of sky. Uh, so one thing that I really enjoyed about that one is I really like the idea of the villain in that. So it's it's. I think the villain kind of sums up like the book each book quite nicely in a hatful of sky like it was very interesting it was very different from the villains we've had before I think I, we compared it a bit to uh, Masquerade in that it was a deliberate step down like mm-hmm. we, before we had the Queen of the Elves and here we have like a Hiver which is like even the use of a Hiver instead of the Hiver was like a huge deal because they managed to like give it like a real personality and the fact that like much of what made the hiver dangerous and relevant was that it played into like the pe- people's secret desires and how we saw this in um Tiffany in that like many of the terrible things she did were things that she thought herself that she would like to do uh instead of like you know you know going completely against what I want to do now the cunning man is similar in that but I think it's the muddled nature in like his origins and like the way he pops up in like uh, how Granny Widowax may ha- or fought him before, and you know how it's a very straightforward way in which he's defeated, and also the stakes aren't quite clear. Uh, this is why I think the Hatful of Sky it would be better myself personally. Yeah, I mean, I I can't argue with any of that. I I do agree with you. Now, I suppose my my counter argument would be. We, while we criticize this for its messiness, like think of all the good characters we have here. Mm. You know, with like like the, all the good side characters. Like we get obviously much more of of Roland than we do in Half of the Sky. He gives her the um, the necklace, the, and that's pretty necklace. much it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that, that, that's it. Letitia, Amber. It's obviously as you said, it rightly it is very messy that we don't kind of get any resolution or even any hint about what the significance of her preternatural ability for languages is. But her and and her like, I can't remember who the chap is who she ends up with who got her pregnant, and the way they think about like him kind of not really fitting into the traditional masculine roles on the, on the chalk because he's a tailor rather than like a yeah you know yeah. like a like that I think that's interesting I think as I said I don't like the resolution of the Duchess being like aha she's actually uh, you know social climber gold digger herself but I think other than that she's quite an interest she goes from being presented as just like a vivid and unpleasant antagonist and then we peel it back a bit and we see more human layers to her obviously we, we get very good bits with, with Nanny and Granny and we get uh, I think maybe while the watch cameos are a little indulgent and as I said kind of undercut things a little by having them aware of it the Nanny and Granny cameos are the opposite where they show up we get like lots of good character bits with them, but we also get a very good reason as to why they're not, you know, interfering. Why they're not kind of helping Tiffany out. In fact, they also they add to the stakes because the, the stakes then become they're going to kill her if, if you know if the Cunning Man uh, wins. Yeah, I, I just think we have a lot of really good side characters. Whereas in 
Hathless Guy, not that it has known, but stuff like even people like someone like Anagramma, say, who I think is quite a good character, mm. is ultimately better realized in Wintersmith than she is in uh, Half of Sky, where she's kind of presented as like, you know, sort of like Regina George meets Hermione Granger, kind of typical, like, like mm. ambitious sort of, you know, mean girl leader of the pack. In a way, that's like fun and stuff, but like, you know, when you think of her as a good character, it's really more what we see in Wintersmith when she's kind of placed out of her depth when she gets to cottage. What's, what's, uh, what, the, the pig witch, uh, Petulia. Petulia, she, she, yeah. She's good. And and we see like bit interesting bits of her in Hatful of Sky. Miss Level, I don't think is particularly vivid. Like that's the fair. central yeah. thing of her being two people is an, an interesting concept, but I don't think like compared to say Miss Tick or Miss Treason, she isn't like a you know, considering she's quite a significant character and it, she isn't very big. So I, I like I suppose I'd argue for for uh, I shall wear midnight not only the strength of yeah thank you and the strength the ambition of the ideas but uh, like we are presented with so much stuff and that stuff includes a lot of really interesting characters. Mm. This um <laughs> to to drag this discussion into a completely different medium. This kind of reminds me of the difference between like a really strong linear narrative driven game versus an open world uh, type <laughs> game. Because, Eastern RPGs <laughs> versus Western RPGs. Yeah, because like um like I I totally agree with what you're saying. A lot of the characters that are in a hatful of we we mentioned this before how a lot of them feel very static because the focus was very much on esque. Or not on Esk, sorry, on um, Tiffany. And like, I'm not, and this is the thing, I think she goes through really good character development in both of these books. But um, there's some really good moments that like, I think should be mentioned before. Now, I'm, I'm willing to like, you know, concede to like, uh, I- I'm perfectly happy for either of these to win. Like, I'm not really pushing too strongly on A Hatful of Sky because they're both good books, just in different ways. Um, but I will say before, like I do that, that there are some good moments in a hatful of sky that like, we should like remember like the moment where the old man Tiffany is caring for mm-hmm. when he gets married at the very end of the book is a really, really sweet moment. I personally like the way granny weatherwax is portrayed in a hatful of sky a lot more than I did in uh, this book. Uh, that moment where she's brought up to the mountains and Tiffany has to basically insist on helping her because she refuses like to be helped herself. Mm-hmm. It's a really good moment, I think. And even like the climax with like death uh, is great. Like I, in my opinion, like a, mo- a lot more uh, exciting and fulfilling than the way this book ends. But as I said, I'm willing to concede it like uh, because I do think that I, I shall wear wind. I don't know why that's so hard to remember. Two and a half hours. Yeah, I know. The thing is, there are, there are moments in that that are like, Staggeringly good. Like I, 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 you know, I, you know it's I, an I excellent still... moment too, and and it's sort of, it's it's kind of adding, I suppose, adding to my belief that that this does Aaron above is the fact that I've only thought of it now because we've talked about so much else. Is the interactions Tiffany has with her dad at the start when, like, oh, yeah, I think the relationship yeah. they have, but again, it's that distance between like her looking, him looking on her as a witch and as the witch of his community, but also mm. as his daughter, you know. Um, yeah, 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 and I really like the way it's done, where it's not like completely antagonistic. Like it's not just like he disapproves of what she's doing. He's more kind of protective, but also conscious that he needs to give her space and kind of respect what she's trying to do, and can't mm-hmm. fully get to grips with the gravity of it. Like so, she almost has that kind of 
part rant, part confession, where she talks about that horrible scene about the finding a woman who was eaten to death by her, or eaten after, uh, by her cats after she died, you know, to kind of illustrate, this is the stuff I deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, I think that's a really um, lovely scene. Uh, and then the idea of, like, what he'll think when, when she's, uh, you know, when, when she's kind of locked up, and that she has this trust in him without without entirely being dependent on him as well. I, I, yeah. Particularly for a YA book, without wishing to be too, like, I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but I think understandably, like, a lot of YA literature is about, like, kind of buildings, romance, coming of age, you throwing off the the, the shackles or the um, safety net of relying on your parents and becoming independent. And that's either done often done in a way where either the parents are just taking out of the picture altogether or where they're kind of antagonistic or impairing whatever journey our young person mm. protagonist is on. And he manages to walk such a wonderful middle path with Tiffany's relationship with her parents, particularly her dad, in this one, mm. where it's like... Yeah, she's not relying on them, but and they can't fully understand what it is she's doing. But they also kind of are growing to respect her and give her space as well. Mm. But would you not argue though that like in this list that we are kind of ranking the books like as books themselves? So like, isn't like a hatful of sky tied together like much much better? Like, I mean, I'm not saying that, like like. Uh, I shall wear midnight. I don't know why I keep forgetting. <laughs> I don't like. I'm not saying that like it's a bad book at all. Like obviously, because we've been arguing all its good points. Like, but it felt unsatisfying at the end. Like, I mean, I liked it, but and like, it's on the strength of the messages it's trying to portray, as opposed to like the messages it got across. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can appreciate on the level of what it's trying to do versus what it did, but like. To most, like a hat full of sky, I feel like achieved everything it went out to do. So, like, surely that would be that should be placed higher. I, I see what you mean, but I I don't think like it's not like a shower midnight got it that time <laughs> fell down in everything it went for. You know what I mean? I think like True. like it it miss hit or left you feeling in some places. Oh, I thought this was going to be more drawn out or better realized, but there was still a lot of you know a lot of hits, a lot of kind of interesting things that we didn't have otherwise as well I think while and this is always the tough business of comparing the ones that are in like this ongoing sub-series that while they Mm. are while they are all uh, you know independent standalone stories particularly the Tiffany ones is a strength of building on her growing as a character so it's very Mm. hard to divide like each subsequent one has the strength of the others to draw from in kind of where she's got to but at the same time, it's then what it does with, you know, with, with with that strength at that point. Like, say, compare something like Jingo, right, in the Watch series, where our criticism of that was like, yeah, this is fun, but, you know, you could take it out and of the Watch and it wouldn't make a difference. Like, like there's nothing here that progresses Vimes or Carrot or Engu or any of the rest really on. And so far, I don't think any of the Tiffany ones have felt like that. Like, they've all felt like they're adding something to mm. her journey and her... Um, struggles and I think I Shall Wear Midnight is adding a whole lot as well like yeah it has the advantage over Half Full Sky it's drawing on firmer foundations with Wintersmith with Half Full Sky behind it but it's mm. it's still doing a, a whole lot with that you know and mm. succeeding more, more than it fails I think like it, it certainly falls down in some areas but like it does succeed a lot as well you know okay 
I, I, I don't really want to give this one up now, but like, I tell you what, how about as a final kind of tiebreaker sort of thing, right? For both rolls, books. Yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> give, give Rose a quick call. So what do you think is the better one? Um, no, for its kind of its final sort of tiebreaker thing, how about we each think of like our favorite moment and our least favorite, our favorite thing and least favorite thing about both books, kind of pit them against each other. Like, and we should, I'm thinking hopefully we should be able to get a conclusion from that. What well, to tell you what? Because I'm conscious that while I'm arguing for this one in this particular case, it's been you know six weeks or whatever since I finished it, and God knows how long since we don't have full sky. Will we keep them as a as a tie at the moment, and then between this and our next episode, we can like dip back into our notes or re-listen to the half full sky episode to get a firmer idea on what we're arguing about there, and then then like determine it when we're what's what's the next one after this is it a uh, snuff snuff yeah so what then when we're doing snuff at the end we can like you know or at the start just say like okay we've had you know time in between to well you know what alternatively what we could do to make it interesting is we could just have both books tie for the same place tie game we'd like <laughs> scene at the end of hockey episode of simpsons yeah. Our listeners are this riot at the side of a draw. Certainly, any of our American listeners will. They hate well, ha- draws. We- Here's an idea. Why don't we put it to our listeners? Actually, like we can put a pin in this. Like, which do people think is the better book? And we t- we can do all three. Okay, we can argue have our own points. Of democracy. <laughs> we can have our like our own um, our own points, which we will argue at the end of the next episode. We'll take this into account. We can ask people which do you think is the better book between the two. And, you know, if we still can't come to a conclusion at the end of that, I would be happy enough to have both tied because, as I said, they're both really good in, like, different ways. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That seems that okay. seems better than us arguing around in circles at the end of this anyway. So, yeah. for the moment, at least, then, listeners, we have a uh, tie at 16th place between A Hatless Guy and I Shall Wear Midnight. So Interesting. First time a, that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I knew I it was going to happen. We had we had we had masquerade and small gods tied before, but we knew we were having Rose on for the Hogfather episode. Oh, so that's right. Yes, I remember. <laughs> yeah, that that makes sense. I have a feeling um, I shall wear mid- midnight might be pushed above because I'm sure I remember someone or reading somewhere that it was really really well Rose, regarded. Um, so. I know Mark Burroughs and we, we were talking to him about his uh, The Magic of Terry Pratchett's right. biography he said it was one of his favourites uh, That's right. I don't know whether yeah, that's yeah. representative of, of, of wider opinion on it but it certainly obviously has Well he wrote a book on it so he must be <laughs> <laughs> That's the rule right? Um, right so so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there and uh, you can you can Get in touch with us, RadioMorepork at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Radio Morepork. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on uh, most places where you get your uh, podcasts. If you want to leave us a rating and a review, that'd be really nice. Nice way to kind of spread the word, get more people on board, makes it easier for people to, to find us. That's how the, the cruel gods of the algorithm function. And yeah, we'll see you next time for, for uh, settling this dispute and talking about snuff. Yeah, it'll be fun to check. All right, well, in the meantime, to all our listeners, thank you very much for listening. I know our accents can be quite grating after a while, but uh, <laughs> you've you've lasted this long, so fair play to you. Yeah, happy New Year, the year of happy New Year indeed. Well, yeah. Whatever it is, the, I I think the actual like they give out these Discworld years of the year the distressed badger or the year of the oh, yeah. whatever. I, I don't know what year we're in now, but whatever whatever one it is, I hope it's a good one.
Yeah, and if in case you'd like to know, uh, Happy New Year in Japanese is Akimashite Omadetto Gozaimasu. There you go, little extra thing for you to hear today. Yeah, there you go. And you know, unless you're a fluent Japanese speaker, you can prove that that's not true. <laughs> so, goodbye. Good luck. Snuff? Snuff. Yeah.